0: The Cultists present...
1: Cinema of Cruelty.
0: And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, What happens when your rock star ex-girlfriend gets kidnapped by a 1950s biker who is hellbent on keeping her in his dystopic dive bar palace like some Super Mario Bros. style villain? Would you return from whatever Dust Bowl infantry you crawled out of to save her? Provided your sister sent you a typewritten telegram and asked real nicely. What about if her current boyfriend paid you ten grand? Would that sweeten the deal? Or would you reluctantly rescue the damsel in distress, only to take her to a broken down subway to punch her in the face? Well, let's find out. Because today we are rocking out to Walter Hill's 1984 pure cinema cult flick Streets of Fire. So sit back and set your clocks to another time and place as we prepare to go nowhere fast. Brought to you by the interior mindscape of a very particular teenage psyche, the neon fog-filled alleys in which 8-bit gaming meets extreme realism, making light of sexual assault in a PG-rated film, and the perfectly coiffed avian hair of a young William Defoe. And of course, our safe word today is verbose. Anything to add, Benji?
1: I don't know about you, London, but I. After watching this, I need a beer. Um, I don't know. I got some Corona. You want Corona?
0: I could dig it, but what about you, Benji?
2: Can you dig
0: it? Can you dig it? <laughs> Technically, wrong Walter film, but whatever. It's all the same thing.
2: You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of. SPACE! <laughs> Boy! I'm so I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Anja! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my God! Disappointed.
1: Disappointed! Jesus. Oh Oh hi, Mark. Patient. Oh, London. How are you doing over there?
0: Yo, Benji. Not my goddamn...
1: What? Uh. Tonight is what it means to be young. Tonight is what it means to be young. Okay. <laughs> yes, that's center. right. Wait, so where
0: were you going with the corona thing?
1: I wanted to know if you would like a corona. I don't know if you Why? enjoy corona at all.
0: I, I feel like this is a reference to something I'm not quite getting. Is there corona in this film?
1: No. No. I just figured you've had corona and did not care for it.
0: Oh... I didn't even make that connection. See, that's how, like, out of it I am. I am a little sick today. Don't don't Uh, (laughs) be so
1: stupid, London. You're not pretty enough to get away with it.
0: I I am, though. (laughs) I am. But, yes, my voice is a little different today. I've been a little sick, so we'll, we'll see if the vocal cords hold up. But, luckily, I am doing all right now, so we shall power through as true cultists do. Because there was no stopping us on recording a podcast, or recording this episode, I should say, on Streets of Fire, 1984 Streets of Fire. Benji, talk to us about Streets of Fire. What is your relationship to this movie?
1: (laughs) I never saw it when I was younger. I think that this was a cult film that a lot of people saw on TV and videotape, but I never saw it myself, so I had no connection to it prior. And now I have all of the connections to this movie. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it is one of those movies that did play on late night cable a lot. I think at some point it was picked up by HBO or Cinemax and Showtime, something like that, that did just always run it. And so most of the people I have talked to about this movie feel like they've seen portions of it from late night cable viewings, but they never have necessarily sat down and watched it all the way through until later in their lives. And that's curious because... It is a Walter Hill film. It mm-hmm. feels very much like a Walter Hill film, but it is not the most well-known per se or well-watched of his films. So once again, we're staying on trend with picking <laughs> the movie of a director that isn't necessarily their most iconic work.
1: I would say it's not a film that Walter Hill is very well known for compared to other films of his, but I would say it's within his style. It, it stays oh, yeah. on style, unlike, say... A Dangerous Method, which is very much not Cronenberg style, or Bad Lieutenant, Port of Cull, New Orleans, which was not necessarily Werner Herzog style, you know, as grand as it often is in films. But this, I think, is definitely Walter Hill's style. It's just not the most popular film he made.
0: Yeah, well, the thing with Walter Hill, so Walter Hill we will be talking about throughout this cast, but... He is a guy that not enough people outside of the industry talk about. Just not enough people talk about Walter Hill, I find. Because he is a guy that has a style. And he remains consistent with that style throughout the entire of his career. And this is going to be a guy who is both a screenwriter and a director. But mostly a screenwriter, actually. And he's going to write a bunch of screenplays that were well-known and well-received in the 70s and 80s. So this is the man who brought us The Getaway, The Thief Who Came to Dinner, Hard Times, The Driver is probably the one that is most heralded in film schools and the general film industry as his best script from a writing perspective. He's gonna do The Warriors, which is often the fan favorite of Walter Hill's oeuvre.
1: I really can dig it, it's true.
0: Yes. And yeah, we can all dig the Warriors. And then he's going to do 48 Hours, which is going to be one of his most commercially successful films. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that one in a little bit. He's going to do Streets of Fire, of course. He's going to do Alien 3. Interestingly enough, one thing I did not know about Walter Hill before I started doing the research for this particular episode is that he actually did co-write Alien 1 and then helped brush up Alien 2. He remains uncredited on these films. They're not even on his IMDb. But huh. he did have a yeah very strong hand in writing as... the first Alien film.
1: Yeah, I could see that as a polish kind of job, just you know, spruce of the dialogue a little bit. That's yeah, very...
0: kind of like how mysteriously Tom Stoppard seems to keep swooping into brush up <laughs> scripts that we never knew he touched. So that uh, that's fun and interesting. So he also did Wild Bill, Last Man Standing. Oh yeah, you and know so those things. His yeah, his work was really. Prominent in the 70s and the 80s mostly. And he also has a very distinct screenwriting style. And we're going to get into that in a little bit when we start looking at the movie itself here in a second. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about him and his style is that pretty much everything he does is a Western when you boil it right down. It doesn't matter the time and the place. And this is not my observation. This is a general observation, as well as Hill's own observation. Yeah, there are
1: still clues he gives, like when he says, "All my films are westerns." That's a hint that yes. all of his films so are a westerns. So direct
0: quote from Hill: "Right, yeah. <laughs> every film I've done has been a western," and you're like, "All right, go on." And he does, and he Do says tell. that oh. the western is ultimately a stripped-down moral universe. That is, whatever the dramatic problems are, beyond the normal avenues of social control and social alleviation of the problem. And I like to do that even within contemporary stories. So he likes these stories of good versus evil, of non-moral ambiguity, and these landscapes that just seem to have an indeterminable expanse, I guess, kind of like what most Westerns are known for, right? Are there landscapes? And this idea that the landscape just continues on, and yet we're seeing a claustrophobic, in some ways, for the breadth of the landscape look at a group of people or a situation in a lawless town or lawless area in which good and evil and morality have to become the arbitrators of this space. And that is kind of a Walter Hill movie. Yeah,
1: it's fascinating that we're having a Western set in this seemingly endless metropolis that this film seems to take place in.
0: And another thing I learned about Walter Hill that I hadn't known before was that he was apparently a really sickly kid when he was a child and spent a lot of time in bed reading comics, reading these pulp novels, but also just kind of imagining stuff in his mind, imagining these very boiled down stories and that his father and his grandfather were... I don't know if they were mechanics. I think the way he put it was they were really good with machines, mm. and they were really good with their hands and building things. And him as this sickly little kid never was. And he always sort of looked up to the heroics of just those types of people, the blue-collar labor workers, as it were, as these kind of backbone heroes of the society that surrounded him that he aspired to be and didn't quite have that access to. And so a lot of the heroes in his movies are going to be these kind of Joe Schmo guys that yeah. are able to Very much get so. things done. Speaking of the Joe Schmo guys that are able to get things done, lightning summary Take of it. this film. Take
1: us there. Take me through so, it. Let me make me feel this.
0: Yeah. Preface... Walter Hill doesn't give a fuck about the plots of his movies, (laughs) not in the same way (laughs) as like some of the guys we watch where it's just abstract and there is no plot. This has a plot, but it's not very complicated. No, no. We're going to have rock star Diane Lane and she's going to get kidnapped by 1950s style greaser William Defoe, and then rescued by her taciturn dust bowl soldier, (laughs) once and possibly future lover. And as I was watching this, it kind of dawned on me, I'm like, this is basically like the plot to Super Mario Brothers, if you just take out the Wandering Turtles. I
1: could totally see Willem Dafoe putting on some motion capture dots in a mocap suit and playing Bowser in a Super Mario Brothers movie.
0: Right? Yeah. So, yeah, like, William <laughs> Dafoe is going to be in this, by the way, as our, like, Bowser sort of individual. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to have this kind of princess-like figure who's a rock star in this, and we're going to have a little, like mario slash michael perry slash tom cody whatever and he's just gonna be going through all of these motions to go and try to rescue the princess from this dude who just randomly like swept up and like snatched her off stage and carried her away to his little greaser castle and i'm like this is mario brothers is what it is
1: i think michael perry he could play a brooklyn plumber fairly well
0: yeah, he totally could. He could. So, really, I mean, this is yeah, it's this Mario is Mario Brothers. Brothers. This is, but set in a another time. blend of the 1940s, 50s, and 80s in a dystopic. It's another
1: time, time and place. another place, London. It, the movie could not make that more clear.
0: Yeah. So, before we get into more production details, what is the best thing about this movie?
1: The best thing about this movie for me is that it is as close to a Bat Out of Hell jukebox musical that we're ever going to get. When I was a kid, I was a huge fan of those meatloaf albums, the Bad Out of Hell, Bad Out of Hell 2, Bad Out of Hell 3, you know, <laughs> a little bit there. And there was that time period where we were getting a lot of jukebox musical movies, like Across the Universe for the Beatles, Mamma Mia for ABBA, uh, Rock of Love for just general 80s music. And I was always annoyed there could never be a musical like that for Bad Out of Hell. Despite the fact that I realized that would have to be a three and a half hour movie because most of the songs on Bad Out of Hell 1 and 2 are all like eight or nine minutes long or fucking 17 minutes long in the case of everything uh, or I'll do everything for I won't whatever the fucking I won't do that for love song.
0: (laughs) I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yeah, that
1: I'll do. Yeah, that one. That's the one. I always forget what he won't do, but it's something. I don't know. I think he says it.
0: Yeah, what is it that we will have to do for love? Um. Hmm, curious trivia. It's in
1: there somewhere. I mean, it's the <laughs> 17-minute song. He has to bring it up at some point.
0: But, yeah, there's a lot of musical talent that worked on the music for this. So we get Steinman, we get Irvine, we get Ray Coder. Cotter, Cooter? The double O's. I never know how to quite Rye pronounce Cooter? that. But he's constantly ranked as one of the greatest like, guitarists of all time. It's had a really prolific career. Mm-hmm. I saw that Stevie Nicks wrote one of the songs. So oh, did you like, do. There's a whole bunch of musical (laughs) talent, yeah, that wrote the songs in this. So my best thing is... Your best thing? I mean, the music is great, Mm -hmm. but the thing that even rises above that for me are some of the just technical production details in this film. This film is something that a lot of people use the term pure cinema to describe, and that's another term we'll, we'll break down here in a little bit, but this idea that... The technicalities of the film are put right at the foreground. That's, that's what this film concerns itself with. And it is a really good example of the Neo way in which we use the term pure cinema. And mm-hmm. that it's just beautiful. Like the camera work, the cinematography, it just carves out a certain space that is really beautiful and a joy to watch. What
1: is the worst thing? The fact that the movie peaks in the first eight minutes... It does, doesn't it? It is the first eight or nine minutes of this movie is some of the most epic cinema I've ever seen in my life. And it's not like the rest of the movie is bad or anything, but it doesn't come anywhere close to the energy that the first eight minutes of this movie have.
0: You know me, the, the plot is generally the last thing I care about mm-hmm. in a film. And so I'm, I'm a pure cinema kid. But at the same time, the fact that this does still have a plot, right? It's a very straightforward plot. I don't know if that helps or hinders its pure cinema because I just can't care about the plot. This movie doesn't care about the plot. And for some reason, I feel that more than I do with something like Beyond the Black Rainbow that really just doesn't even have a plot. And that's fine (laughs) because it's so pretty. But I don't know if this one quite transcends its pure cinema aesthetic in the way all the way through that something like Black Rainbow does. So there are parts where it does seem to be unnecessary or lag a little bit, so Mm -hmm. we can visit those parts. All right, so, getting into this film, some other production lead-up details that become a little bit important as to why the hell this film was even able to be made in the first place.
1: Because this seems like a crazy film that you have to have a lot of stroke in Hollywood to be able to make something so out there and so artistic as this.
0: There's some people that made this happen, and one of them is going to be Walter Hill, as we mentioned, and then the other starts with a little tale where once upon a time in Hollywood (laughs) in the 1980s, there was a production team duo named Larry Gross and Joel Silver. Mm -hmm. Joel Silver was already a fair veteran in the production world, so... I guarantee you, if you've watched ten movies, you've probably watched at least one Joel film. If you've watched film. ten
1: movies in your life, you've watched three movies that Joel Silver's produced.
0: Yeah, if, uh, if you've watched any movie from the 1980s, really, yeah. you've probably watched a Joel Silver film, because he's going to bring you things like... The Warriors, Xanadu, 48 Hours, Weird Science, Commando, The Lethal Weapons, Predator, Die Hard, Row House, Demolition Man, all the Matrix movies.
1: The Matrix movies! He brought us the, everything from The Warriors to The Matrix. Think about that.
0: Yeah, and this dude has produced so much, like, kind of big blockbuster stuff in Hollywood that if you watch the film Tropic Thunder... Tom Cruise's character, Les Grossman, (laughs) is actually supposed to be a parody of Joel Silver. Yeah. So think Les Grossman, and you've got kind of a a vague idea of this 1980s uh, production thing. Mm -hmm. But so these producers, Larry Grossman and Joel Silver, and then also Walter Hill, had worked on a movie two years prior to Streets of Fire called 48 Hours. Now, Benji, what is 48 Hours?
1: 48 Hours is a film... That does not age well at all. I had never seen 48 Hours, so I gave that a watch. And it's considered one of the very first buddy cop films. What's fascinating about watching it is that it's not a buddy cop film, because Eddie Murphy is not a cop. Nick Nolte is a cop. And when one of his buddies dies, who's played by Jonathan Banks, uh, is shot at the beginning of the movie, he has to find someone who knows the guy that shot his partner, or shot his fellow cop. And one of them is a convict, played by Eddie Murphy, and he, Nick Nolte wants him to help out on the case. And so Eddie Murphy is let out of prison for 48 hours to help him work in the case. So
0: 48 hours did really
1: well. Yeah, it made $78 million in a $12 million budget. And when that happens in Hollywood, the people in charge of making movies say, OK, you made a lot of money with this movie, so make something else, because we don't know what makes movies make money, so make another one and Walter yeah, Hill did. you can do
0: whatever you want
1: yeah <laughs> and, and what
0: these guys wanted to do is they wanted to create a film that just had all of the boiled down components of everything that they thought was super cool when they were 14. like. This is, once again, not my just general observation, but this is...
1: This is the thing that From they the
0: words of the, the <laughs> filmmakers themselves, they just wanted to collapse everything that they thought was cool when they were 14 and put it in a film. So things like rock stars and car chases and rainy streets and whatever. And so that's what we're going to get in this film.
1: When this movie first came out... It did uh, well. It didn't do very good business. It had a fourteen and a half million dollar budget, only made eight million dollars. So not the kind of success that they were hoping to repeat from Forty Eight Hours. And reviews for it were not very good. There is a review from Janet Maslin of the New York Times, where she she says the movie is misogynistic, but then she also says there aren't any great performances, but at least there are some good faces. Like, oh, okay, well it's misogynistic, but it, you know at least superficially, <laughs> but at least the people
0: are hot. Yeah, at
1: least people are hot. There were people. Uh, Gary Arnold of the Washington Post. He thought the movie didn't deliver on its premise, and he didn't like how tame Walter Hill was being compared to the Warriors. Which, yeah, fair enough. This was a PG film, <laughs> though PG. We'll get into it later on. Meant something a little different in, in the early '80s. However, despite these critics hating it, there was there was a critic, a champ of critics. Our boy yeah, was. Roger Ebert. That's right. Roger Ebert. He's was like, my boy. this movie is amazing. The art makes up for any shortcomings. The plot. The style is fantastic. Studebakers fucking rule. Seriously, they Ebert, do. Ebert loved Roger Ebert. They do. He loves. He loves Studebakers. Uh, can't blame him.
0: I will be talking about Studebakers <laughs> later. Don't you worry.
1: Don't you worry. So. So now let's talk about this movie that Roger Ebert was the true lone hero on, on Champion.
0: As per usual. Uh, (laughs) Roger Ebert. I love Roger Ebert.
1: It's time to start the music because this is a rock and roll fable.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did we mention it's a musical? It it
1: actually (laughs) isn't, though. It just has a lot of music in it. From another time and another place.
0: And we know that because that's the title card we get as it opens. It lets (laughs) us know. That we are in another time and another place. What that time and place is, it doesn't matter. And why it doesn't matter is because, one, it's clearly both sound stages and Chicago. <laughs> and in this place, I guess it's called Richmond, mm-hmm. but we, we don't really get that relief displayed prominently anywhere this idea that this place is called Richmond we pick it up from a couple places but it's not important
1: neighborhood is called Richmond there's another neighborhood called the battery but they never say like oh here we are in Richmond in south chicago or in you know in jersey city
0: and the time is going to be a really fascinating great blend of stuff we're going to have things that are distinctly 1980s when this film was actually made and came out we're going to have those neon lights we're going to have some costuming that's clearly 1980s and some musical influences that are clearly 1980s and then we are going to get a lot of the 1950s. So we're going to get even more costumes from the 1950s. All of the cars are from the 50s. And then we're also going to get a very strong 1940s component. So the soldiers that show up are going to be dressed like these weird Dust Bowl era blends of mostly <laughs> World War II era street attire but then there's going to be a little bit of like dust bowl stuff coming in so we're getting a little bit of the 1930s they're going to have typewriters so it's like this whole strange blend of different time periods and that creates something very very cool in this film it is also going to be lit in a certain way that is taking from really old school hollywood lighting and then also very neon noir 80s oh boy
1: yeah a lot of lighting. That. A, lot of, a lot of Blade Runner neon in this movie. A lot of wet streets and neon lights.
0: Oh, God, those wet streets.
1: Streets of fire. No, streets of water. I'm in so this weak movie. for wet
0: streets. <laughs> but this aesthetic is going to be something that Walter Hill is really known for in terms of the things that he likes to do in his films. It is going to be so well known that back in his heyday, there was actually a term that I think Walter Hill himself was the one to coin. It was hard for me to find the exact source if Walter Hill came up with the term first or if critics of Walter Hill came up with the term and then Walter Hill embraced it because Walter Hill in interviews talked about it like it was his term, but then critics also utilized this term too in talking about his films. And this term is extreme realism. And so it was the extreme realism of Walter Hill. Mm. And what that was supposed to mean or portray was this idea that Hill's worlds that he creates are very tactile, they're very tangible, Uh and there's something that's otherworldly or fantastic about them in certain ways, but not in a magical realism place, right? Like, everything that we find on screen are mundane objects, but they're just going to be lit in a certain way or combined and presented in a certain way that makes them feel like... it can't quite be reality. It's something that's so gritty or it's so foggy or (laughs) it's so like macho violent that it's not quite reality, but it takes the mundaneness and expands it instead of the fantastic elements and expands it. It's a very interesting, specifically Walter Hill thing. And so he got this term extreme realism applied to his work. The other thing that he gets applied to his work is this idea of haiku script writing
2: Mm.
0: his scripts are in a way unlike his spaces so his spaces always have just like tons of stuff in them like there's just so much texture Mm -hmm. his scripts however when you read a walter hill script Most people who read a lot of scripts in general, you can identify a Walter Hill script without even having to pick it up. If you can look at it from a distance and just see it on the page, you can generally be like, I bet that's going to be a Walter Hill script. And that's because the formatting of his scripts are nuts. There is so much space on the page Ah, (laughs) of Walter Hill. Okay. So the thing with most screenwriters in Hollywood is that the standard thing is to have these kind of cues, right? Where you have your dialogue, but then you have little like description paragraphs mm-hmm. that kind of say like, this is, you know, the setting the scene.
1: The action of the thing.
0: Yeah. And those blocks of texts are visible generally. And then Walter Hill, he likes to streamline stuff. He likes to not use full sentences. He likes to allude to things or just directly state things and then leave the interpretation of what's happening up to the reader. And I found kind of a fun quote from Walter Hill on this. Okay. And he says, my scripts have always been a bit terse, both in stage directions and dialogue. I think I've loosened up in the dialogue department, but I still try to keep the descriptions fairly minimal, and in some cases, purposefully minimalist. I still punctuate to effect, rather than to the proper rules of grammar. My favorite description of the dilemma of screenwriting comes from David Gillier. Your work is only read by the people who will destroy it. And that's just what he has to say on screenwriting. It's like, the only people who are generally reading this shit are the directors who are going to come and, like, do whatever they want to with it anyway. So, like, fuck
1: it. That's a man who's been writing scripts for Hollywood for many years who gets the system.
0: Right. And I did, in prep for this, read the... Screenplay to the Warriors. I'm not the Warriors, but I did that as well. I did find the treatment script to Streets of Fire. Well, okay, But cool. it, it's not the one that they ended up fully using because there's things that were taken out in the final film. So oh. we'll look at that throughout. But I also read the screenplay to the Warriors. And just to give you an example of his voice, I guess. Sure. We'll do a little snippet here of how it sounds to read a Walter Hill screenplay. A conclave of the principal gangs within the city, in all their splendor, ornate finery, and Baroque appearance. Black, white, coffee-colored Puerto Rican, Italian, Irish, standing, squatting, more like an encampment of armies than a meeting. The whole underside of the city. One outlandish set of uniforms after another. Hundreds of rough, menacing young men, waiting, watching each other warily in the dark, nervous, murmuring, restlessness rising like a tide among them. The rogues, seated up against the wall of the first terrace, their leader, Luther, at one end. Cropsy, his second in command, at his side. Luther, how's our present for Cyrus? Cropsy, it works. Luther, you sure? Smiles. Cropsy, real sure, smiles back. Luther, Cyrus is just going to love it. And that is a Walter Hill script. <laughs> which <laughs> you you've read some scripts, how does that compare? <laughs> uh,
1: there's not a lot going on there that I can <laughs> not a lot to grasp at. In terms this of is, what what are we looking at? What is happening? It's not terribly clear, but I guess that's the point.
0: This minimalism at its finest. Yeah. It does create a certain... It is kind of a weird pleasure to read his scripts because there is something very direct, right? There's something kind of tonally poetic where you're like waiting, watching each other warily in the dark. Like that does create a certain visual but even his dialogue and this is gonna be another big thing with walter hill's dialogue and we're gonna get it in streets of fire very terse dudes right yeah how's our present for cyrus it works you sure yeah (laughs) like this back and forth it's just wow yeah It's, it's some walter stuff
1: side note i forgot to mention about 48 hours it has some returning cast members like james remar from the warriors also david patrick kelly Playing another guy named Luther, random. Like,
0: okay. Is it or could it be the same character? Could this all be happening in the same world? Is there a Walter Hill universe?
1: I, I would love to imagine that. I mean, really, I would like to think that the Warriors takes place in a city fifty miles away from wherever the events of Streets of Fire are. That I could definitely see. I cannot see a shared universe of the Warriors and Forty Eight Hours. That just that doesn't work.
0: I'm sure there's one way to, like, make it work somehow. Because I did <laughs> notice that the gang in Streets of Fire are going to be called the Bombers. And in the list in the screenplay of the different gangs that are present in the Warriors, the Bombers are one of the gangs. Yeah. they from Fifth Street. See, that's so. why, yeah,
1: Streets of Fire, the Warriors, definitely a shared universe. I can see that happening.
0: Yeah. Especially when we open on this movie. And this movie, it's going to open. And I'm not entirely sure we're not in the Warriors because... <laughs> It is a street, a glistening, wet street with this rainbow of neon lights shining off of the wet before it pans up. And I'm like, yes.
1: And it's we're cutting around very quickly in this opening too. people heading into the place. The cops are watching it. We get some shots of a character who will be called Riva getting ready, played by Deborah Van Valkenberg from The Warriors and just. It's always a delight to see her on screen. She's getting ready to go. And a concert is getting ready to start up. And the music is already playing, presumably from this rock concert. And people are already starting to clap in time to the music. And, like, the energy of this thing is just... It's starting to pick up really, really fast. It's fascinating how quick this movie wants to get you going.
0: Yeah, and this song is great that yeah. it's filtering in here. So we've got a lot of just energy happening. This is something that does diverge very strongly from the initial opening in the script to streets of fire yeah yeah. and the thing that's fascinating is the script upload that i found has a lot of markings on it like some parts are marked off and crossed with notes that certain scenes had already been shot Mm. and so it does seem like this was in part a shooting script. So some of these seem to have gotten edited out very belatedly in the film process. First, what's going to be kind of interesting, I don't remember this, at least from the final cut I saw, but even before it opens with the another place and a, another time, another place, it has a Bruce Springsteen quote opening the script. Interesting. Is that in the movie? Because I don't not, think it's in the movie. That
1: is not in the movie. Uh, it makes sense that they would go to Springsteen, like in this writing phase of it, because they wanted to use his song, Streets of Fire, much yes, later in the And film. it is a
0: quote from that where it says, I live now only with strangers. I talk to only strangers. I walk with angels that have no place, Streets of Fire. Dot, dot, dot. Bruce Springsteen.
1: It fits the tone, but you don't need it.
0: You don't need it. Wisely no, I, removed. And it is interesting to see this process. Yeah. And what we really don't need, but does kind of become interesting, kind of posthumously, kind of in the way that I found some things to be really interesting about the novelization with Lost Boys, where it's like, we don't need this in the movie, but yeah. it kind of, I guess, provides some context that initially in this, oh, so it looks like this actually does have a date. Um, this was the revision of the script that came from 5 1983. So this is okay. what they were working with in May of 1983. Sure. And there was an opening narration, a voiceover. Oh, interesting. From Reva as she's getting ready.
1: Ah, we missed out on more Deborah Van Valkenburg. Damn
0: it all. So how this film opens after the credits in the screenplay is that it's a black screen. And then Reva's voice comes in. Thousands of years, thousands and millions of lives went into the making of cities that were supposed to live forever. Be part of the greatness of dreams be part of the greatness of progress. And then there's a fade in, another time, another place. And then hell, a blasted moonscape, avenues and boulevards with craters, rotting storefronts, broken windows, doorways stand open, paint peeling, the metal bars holding signs are bent, some pushed over on their side. Cars are wrecked, some are sawn in half, some are without tires, some have their windshield glass smashed or missing. Steam rises from beneath oily manhole covers. Tenements with broken glass windows, with torn stairways and torn banisters. Reva's voice continues. But somehow it had all come out wrong. We had a present where nothing worked like it was meant to, where the bonds between people and authority were broken, and the real past of courage and imagination seemed to be buried or forgotten, where things worth remembering were passed over or denied. So, welcome to our time, the hardest of all hard times. Or is that just what people always say? And then you cut to the Richmond Street at night and she's going to go on and on wow. about how okay hopelessness and the true <laughs> past of like, I don't know, and like coal and diamonds and stuff.
1: I thought the Blade Runner voiceover was bad. Good Lord. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so we're, we're talking, like, Blade Runner levels of, like, narration. You know, like yeah, just this they... Unnecessary stuff. Good
1: call, Walter. I think Walter Hill, like, you saw Blade Runner. He's like, oh, no, no, what? This is like the that Blade Runner movie that came out two years ago. Then that movie had a terrible voiceover in it. I don't want to do that.
0: It's like, we don't need this. But it is eventually going to end with her voicing. It all started in the Richmond district where I live. So it is a little bit more... Uh, specific in this initial screenplay that they're in this place called Richmond once again don't need it but I did find it really interesting that initially they were gonna go with this kind of nondescript narrative voiceover to let us know that essentially I mean like what do we really get out of this other than like we're in another time and place yeah that's all you need to say
1: four words another time (laughs) another place That's all you need.
0: Eventually, they're like, fuck it. We'll just start with this title card another time, another place. We're just going to open right with the rock concert. Yeah,
1: no, wisely so. This would not be as awesome of an opening as it is if that very clunky voiceover were in there.
0: Yeah, because the voiceover is going to keep going. We're going to get this idea from Reva that Ellen Ames is our rock star used to live in the town. She's moved away. She's coming back to do a concert. And we're in all of this while Riva's, like, yeah, getting ready. The movie, ready, already, and the you're movie like, tells us all that, though. That... Yeah, we're like, but, I mean, <laughs> just go to the rock concert, right? And that's yeah. what this movie does. So the movie we actually get is just we open on these gorgeous streets that mm-hmm. are a little bit dystopic in nature, but... There's this carved space within this larger city or district that seems to be a little bit more lively. And we know it's more lively because it has more neon lights. Yeah, and so
1: many There are lights. people going
0: to a rock concert. Yes. Ellen Ames and the Attackers? Is and the, the Attackers,
1: yes. Okay. Ellen Ames in concert with the Attackers, I think, is the way that it goes there. But yeah, that's what's so fascinating to hear that voiceover, because one of the things I love about this is that it front loads so much information really quickly and just gives you what you need. Because when the the show is starting up and that music is beginning and everyone's clapping, you hear the announcer say, ladies and gentlemen, the hometown hero is back. Ellen Ames! And then yeah, she Rick Moranis comes out as playing Billy Fish, just saying... Uh, well, someone says to him, like, yeah, big crowd out there tonight, Billy. Yeah, big crowd. Not one of them's got a pot to piss in. Can't believe I got talked into this charity show. So right away you get the idea of, like, what kind of guy Billy Fish, as played by Rick Moranis, is. He's a, kind of an asshole. Doesn't want to be there. Doesn't want Ellen to be there. And we have to, like, say, Rick Moranis, I fucking love him in this movie. Yeah. And a lot of the reviews i looked at about this film that a a lot of them were looking back on it made the strange statement that rick moranis was cast against type not realizing this was rick Moranis' second film he didn't really have a type yet so
0: yeah how fun is it though to watch rick moranis just being an asshole it's super fun
1: if you're not familiar with sctv yeah it's crazy if you ever saw that second city television which was kind of a type of, it was like Saturday Night Live out of Toronto, and Rick Moranis, he played all sorts of characters on that show. One of them was actually a weird parody of Joel Silver, so it's kind of fitting that he's in this film. I bet Joel Silver had to love that. But he he often (laughs) played assholes on that show, too, and he plays a great asshole in this film. And it's funny to me that this came out the same year as Ghostbusters, and had Ghostbusters been the flop and this the hit, I think Rick Moranis he would have been playing very different characters throughout his career, as opposed to, like, the weird schlubby nerd that he kind of always became cast on.
0: That's fair. We had a family friend when I was growing up, random aside, yeah. who looked... Almost exactly like Rick Moranis in my mind, and I could never tell him apart when I was, like, really little. I always thought Mm -hmm. that I was watching this family friend in this, like, Ghostbusters movie, and it (laughs) was very confusing. But, yeah, Michael Weisbach, he's a great guy.
1: Well, the band is starting up, the music is getting going, and now Ellen Aim runs out, played by Diane Lane, and begins to sing a song. And Diane Lane in this movie is lip syncing. And she does a really good job of it, and she had experienced lip-syncing, because I think two years prior to this, she had done a movie called, *The ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, where she played an 80s rock star. Diane Lane, apparently, she plays singers a whole lot. As far as I can tell, has only actually sung in a movie one time on a Francis Ford Coppola movie called The Cotton Club that came out the same year as this. And I actually looked into what the synced voice sounds like and what Diane Lane's actual voice sounds like. So here's like a quick bit of this song. Oh, cool, okay. And here's Diane Lane's actual voice in a very different kind of song.
2: How can you ask me, am I blue? Why wouldn't you be too If it's playing with your man you through.
1: So Not to knock her singing voice too much, but it's very clear to me that that is not Diane Lane singing in in Streets of Fire. And in fact, it's not even just one woman singing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's the amazing thing. So, like we already mentioned, there's a lot of different great musical producers and writers that worked on this movie. And there's a lot of great voices as well. And yet, they wanted Ellen Ames' voice to sound almost otherworldly in its power ballad abilities. And... In order to do this, they actually combined the voices of multiple women so that it just does sound like it has a crazy range, it has a crazy yeah. powerhouse. So these are the voices of Lori Sargent and Holly Sherwood digitally combined. Wow. And that's cool. It's <laughs> so cool, especially digitally combinations in 1984. Yeah. And it's seamless, it's really great. Yeah,
1: it's pretty. It kind of reminds me of the fifth element. There's that scene where like the alien singer uh, does a song and it's the combination of i think five different soprano opera singers to create the sound from fifth element
0: yeah Oh, we need to do the fifth element oh, my but, yeah, God, so yeah. which producer did this song out of the three of them do you remember i
1: think this was a the jim steinman song
0: okay that makes sense so the song's just a lot of fun
1: It's just an awesome power, like, the energy in it is so awesome, and even if the song wasn't good, this would just be amazing concert footage, because there are so many great shots in this thing. The editing is editing on the beat of the song, in tune with the song, the stage lighting is changing from red to blue to white to nude lights, just all over the place, and it's so kick-ass, like, this scene could be its own music video. If it wanted to, it's so well done. Oh my God,
0: those red and blue lights. Yes, oh my God, those red and blue
1: lights.
0: (laughs) Holy shit. All right, so set in this scene. So we're going to have this really cool shot of little Ellen Ames, and it's a medium sort of close up shot. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting composition because we do get, it's a medium shot because we do have her torso and up. It's just the tiniest bit canted from below. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get more of her in the frame, and it's kind of a little, just off its axis a tiny bit. We have the background singers behind her, and the way that they have rigged the lights, we're able to get a stark color difference with this red light pouring down on Diane Lane, and then blue light on her background singers and then on a certain beat of the music that's going to switch and she's going to be bathed in blue light and they're going to be bathed in red light and just that ability to just carve and sculpt Mm -hmm. those sections because they're not that far away from each other we're once again talking about all practical lighting right so this is going to be some highly concentrated colors and filters that are happening here—it's just beautiful.
1: I said that this could be its own music video, even though this is production value that you were not getting in music videos in the early 1980s. If you ever go back and if you go back and watch the early days of MTV, music videos back then sucked. There's a like a music video in-universe later on in this movie that's actually much closer to what music videos were <laughs> back in the day, when it was just a few collected shots of some singers walking around a studio space, and that was it. This is epic beyond belief. So you yeah. were not—you, like, in the 90s, 2000s, you would see this kind of production value in music videos, but back in the 80s, that just wasn't a thing. So this is rock concert footage— unlike much anything else that was available at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of what one wanted MTV to look like in 1984. So it is this futuristic space. It is also interesting that, I mean, with the birth of this 80s music MTV generation, this was the MTV generation. And yet there weren't that many movie musicals that had been circulating and popular at Mm -hmm. this period in time. So the really big heyday of movie musicals are really gonna be more in the 1950s. And Walter Hill actually has given interviews about the process of shooting the music for Streets of Fire because in his mind, he was like, okay, we just wanna have that 50s MGM musical energy. It's amazing how Mm -hmm. many times we've actually come across directors who in their film wanted to channel that MGM musical energy (laughs) from the 1950s, right? Like, down to Verhoeven in Showgirls, right? Kind of brought it up, too. But he was like, yeah, we'll uh, we'll just do an MGM musical, right? It'll be fine. And what he did not realize, since this was still early in his directorial career, is that... Movies work much differently in the 1980s than they did in the 1950s, and that was because in the 1950s, you were still on a studio system. Oh,
1: that studio system, yeah.
0: Yeah, and what was the studio system?
1: You did movies for one studio, that was your job, and you were going to work that job as long as they needed you to. Look into what Judy Garland dealt with during Wizard of Oz. Holy shit, Hollywood was a monster back then.
0: Yeah, we could do Wizard of Oz too, actually. Oh, my. But... Yes. Yeah, so the 1950s studio system were that people are contracted to their individual studios and those studios had the sets set up and they had time. They had time to yes. rehearse. They had time to get shots that could take weeks to months to get. That is not a luxury that 1980s cinema had. And so trying to recreate what in the 1950s would have been a two to three month shooting scene in a couple days was a very, very hard, tall order. And it is also why later, um, I'm sure you will bring up the places in which we kind of see that all of the footage of Ellen Ames singing kind of comes from, like, this one shoot. Because they were like, we we don't have the time. We have this one moment. And then later in the end, Mm -hmm. it'll actually set up why it's a big deal that they actually set that all back up again. But this was very important. This also another just kind of production setup note and then we'll get back to the plot is really going to set up this concept of pure cinema in Walter Hill stuff because holy fuck is it a bold move to open your movie with a full length four minute song.
1: Yeah, not a snippet of a song, not a verse of a song, the full song, a full four minute song like that's longer than most pop songs are. That's a full fucking number.
0: And it's we're not going to get a whole lot of dialogue. At some point, we're going to get these two cops that are like, "Hey, should we go check out the <laughs> Ellen Ames show?" And you just like look at the crowd, you know, just to yeah. establish like this is Ellen Ames' show. But other than that, like, there's not going to be a lot of dialogue. There's just going to be a montage of different images of this rock concert and the people attending the rock concert and the city around it. And so, pure cinema is going to be a term that we start seeing circulate. Or cinema pure um, is a French film movement that happened in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. It's heavily related to the abstract film movement. And we'll save the larger lecture on that for when we do a proper pure cinema film. But the ideology there was this idea that cinema is its own medium, Mm -hmm. that it can do stuff that other mediums can't. Like it's not an oil painting, it's not a book, right? It is a camera that has captured moving images and editing and tempo. And so the drive of pure cinema was to use the technicalities of filmmaking to create the story. And so these are kind of non-narrative films almost. In the old school purist definition of the form, some of them don't even have characters. They don't have stories at all. That term has become a little bit looser now to just sort of indicate films in which the joy of them the efforts of them are on just forcing a story or narrative through the carved out space through the shot dynamics and the editing and the rhythm and the tempo and we see that with this four minute setup here right there's no dialogue it is all just pure cinema that's happening to try to carve out the space we're now inhabiting
1: a great example of something that cinema can do that a stage musical cannot. While this amazing song is happening, we cross-cut it or intercut it with the arrival of a biker gang, cutting back and forth between them. And their arrival is cut to the beat of the song. So yeah, yeah you're not going to get that in a stage musical, and you're not going to get that typically in television either. Well, nowadays maybe, but but that's something only cinema can do.
0: So yeah, so we've got these biker gangs. They're cutting back and forth. The shadow is going to fall over the crowd. Yes. And that shadow, inside that shadow, who's inside that shadow?
1: Is baby face Willem Defoe looking like a fucking ghoul?
0: Yeah, he also has this great hairstyle happening. Oh, God. But yeah. It's kind of like a greaser comb over, except for it's coming up from both sides so uh-huh. that it falls into a center point on his forehead. Because this guy's name, his name is Raven, <laughs> and his hair needs to reflect that. Uh-huh. Choices. Oh. Choices are made and they're great. Not as much of the hair choices, really just Defoe's hair, but then the costuming that's going to happen throughout the rest of this. We Holy love shit.
1: our Ravens here. <laughs> what can we say? So,
0: yeah, Raven just embodying. Yeah. And he sees little Diane Lane. He's like, you know what? I want that woman. Cause I am like Bowser, and that is Princess Peach in this gorgeous red dress instead of pink. Yeah. And I'm gonna go snatch her.
1: Though Ellen Aim has about as much agency as Princess Peach does, so I think it all kind of works out. Again, the references to Mario Brothers. It's they it cannot be ignored. And as the song ends with Ellen Aim saying Godspeed, Godspeed over and over again. Song ends, and Willem Dafoe just shouts out, like, no! And everyone runs up on stage. He runs up, grabs Ellen Aim, and Bill Paxton hops up on stage. And Bill Paxton, like, the hair in this movie is all fantastic, because he has this glorious pompadour haircut. And he tries to help, but he's punched by someone. (laughs) Yes, he is. He's punched by someone that... We saw in our very first episode. We've seen before. Mr. Mr. Lee Ving. Lee Ving. Who played Mr. Body. Yeah, the actor whose name is a pun played the character whose name was a pun in Clue.
0: Also frontman for the band Fear.
1: Yes, frontman for the band Fear. In terms of his acting roles, this is definitely the more believable of his acting roles between this and Clue. He's much more believable as a violent biker thug in this movie than he was as a suave extortionist in Clue.
0: The fun thing is, like, because we mentioned, I think, a couple episodes ago that we were like, hey, Michael Fassbender's back, and he certainly wasn't the first or only person that has had repeat occurrences on this cast because, like, William defoe has been on it.
1: A few times, and yeah.
0: Brad Dourif has, like, come up I don't even know how many times. <laughs> but out of all of the people to make repeats, I was not expecting leaving <laughs> <laughs> to be the one. That, like, I was like, oh, my God, leaving is back. Anyway, so, yeah, leaving punches... Bill Paxton in the face so Bill Paxton's also in this movie This movie is constantly like Just being like Wait Rick Moranis like, Wait Bill fu- Paxton huh? Leaving Like what are you doing here So <laughs> yes. I did not have that experience With Diane Lane Because I did not recognize Diane Lane Until I don't know No until I actually like Looked up This movie Because I was like Who is this woman Because she is gorgeous oh, And I was like Holy She's shit That's what Diane so Lane Looked like when she was 18 Like yeah.
1: Jesus That blows my mind That Diane Lane Was just 18 years old For this film that's yeah, she's nuts. other
0: world gorgeous oh in this. Like, it's God. incredible. But yeah, lots of people. And, and there is chaos. chaos.
1: Chaos happens. People go running. And, you know, when I think of movies, they have scenes where people have to run around a whole lot. I want to hope that it's a coordinated effort that safety measures are being taken.
0: Was that the case here? It was, actually. Oh, this is one God. of the more choreographed chaos crowd scenes that there are in movies and that's because david sasno is going to be the assistant director the first ad on this film and he was put in charge of all the extras and i actually watched a bunch of interviews with this dude talking about his extras crowd control and he mentioned in that interview that he has never once worked with a director who wanted to concern himself with background stuff (laughs) and I can actually back him up on this. I have never had to be in charge of extras myself, but I have witnessed from my practical effects sidelines, the AD have to step in and generally sort of try to choreograph the zombies um, or, you know, like whatever on a film. And so his process, I guess, for choreographing the scene is that the space that they were in had seven exits originally and they reduced them to three, And then he had certain groups that he told like, okay, now you're gonna rush to the exits. You know, you rushed exit one, you rushed exit two, like everybody had a little card of what exit they were rushing to. And then the key to really creating a chaos riot scene is that you have at least one group that was just told to run back and forth, right? (laughs) So that you've got people and like, what this is gonna do is it's going to create this visual effect of different types of lines Mm -hmm. of motion. And so you've got bodies that are racing at a diagonal, but then you also have a group that's running horizontal back and forth. And so it actually creates this really great choreographed crowd movement. And there's something very naturalistic, but also a little stylized, right? That extreme realism coming in is that these are the things that we're gonna just push a little bit extra on. It's gonna not be things that are magical it's going to be things like the crowd going nuts as it's trying to get out of this Ugh, venue so but good.
1: we're good folks we're spending a lot of time in this opening this opening is like the meat of the movie yeah, we,
0: you already mentioned that like after the first eight minutes it's like whatever it's absolutely nuts
1: <laughs> we're back outside now where ellen has been put on a bike and she's being taken away the cops are trying to do something but it's this army of bikers against these two cops so they're kind of useless there's a crazy moment where lee ving's character i think his character's name is greer is molesting a woman and is ripping her blouse open and briefly her breasts are exposed and this was a moment where i thought wait a minute what is this movie rated and i looked it up this movie is rated pg and i thought whoa how the hell is this movie how can this movie be rated pg this movie came out a month before the pg-13 rating was a thing
0: Ah, nice.
1: Yeah, the this movie debuted June 1st of 1984, and the PG-13 rating came out in July 1st of 84, though it, it wouldn't be put on a movie, I think, until Red Dawn. That came out in August. <laughs> that was the first PG-13 movie, but... People have been complaining about that. They're like, we need something different because Temple of Doom is really the same thing as Sixteen Candles, and Sixteen Candles is slightly less violent than Temple of Doom. (laughs) Not much, mind you, but slightly.
0: You gotta wait till a kid is at least 13 (laughs) to introduce them to casual sexual assault. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's
0: a line. Cut to insert shot of a telegram slash typewriter from the side, so we've got these hands that are typing, and the really great kind of sound effects of those keys just pinging out a sentence, which just says, please come home, I need you, or dear Tom, please come home, I need you. And you're like, okay, so apparently there's this dude named Tom, somebody needs him. Fine. And then we...
1: We go to an L train, and we meet some guy named Tom, presumably, because it says, Tom, come home, I need you. Fade to a guy in a train, we're going to assume that that's Tom. And I think it's interesting to note, this is the nine minute mark of the film. And like, until this moment, we really have not had a chance to breathe because there's been so much happening in this opening. And it's not until like Reva looks at Elena and being taken away and like looking distressed that you have a moment to go, oh my God, what, what, what's happening in this movie? Then fade Two in this telegram being sent, Tom arriving, and now the opening credits are starting. We've been yeah. not meant this strange film. strange pacing. Yeah, and opening credits, Michael Paré, his name comes up on the screen. And in, he gets a good hero introduction to this film, because this is Tom Cody, played by Michael Paré. And what would you say about Michael Paré's performance in this film?
0: Okay, so <laughs> Michael Paré's performance in this film is... It's kind of whatever, but it's kind of also fine cuz it's sort of I guess just what the character calls for.
1: Yeah, that was my takeaway on it like
0: this film doesn't give a fuck about its characters cuz it's pure yeah. cinema. It's like yeah. this is a dude. This doesn't He's pretty. Yeah. He's got a creepy little like wiry mustache, 80 style. <laughs> Crazy thing about Michael Perret is that I feel like most people probably if you showed them this dude would not be able to name him, like have no idea who he is. Right. And yet he went on to have a career in which he has 176 credits on IMDb.
1: Working actor! Like,
0: dude was in some stuff. Yeah. And the thing that blew my mind was that he has 23 credits alone for 2020 through 2021. Really? They're all listed as either completed, filming, pre-production, or announced. 23 no. films. What the
1: fuck? Good on you, Michael Parade. <laughs> like, dude, dude, yeah. respect.
0: I like I've never seen that. Like there are actors that will like churn them out, but like 23 is yeah. if, in a year's time span is crazy impressive. But the things that he will also be known for is he's going to play Tony in The Greatest American Hero, which came up on Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> Monsters and Mazes, whatever the fuck
1: that Believe is. it or not. You know? So, yeah, he's in
0: 30 out of 44 episodes of The Greatest American Hero, okay. um, which was his second role ever at the time. But the thing that he's going to be most well-known for right before appearing in Streets of Fire is a movie called Eddie and the Cruisers. And he is going to play a rock star Eddie in oh. Eddie and the Cruisers. And right. so for him to then show up in this rock and roll fable was very appropriate and probably what got him the role in this. One of the strange kind of like pop culture, I mean, it wasn't really controversies. It wasn't that big to become a controversy, but there was there's a little bit of like attitude about it, is that they had a music video for Eddie and the Cruisers on the dark side, and he is portrayed as he is in the film as the singer of the song. It actually is going to be John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band that did all of the music for Eddie and the Cruisers, and so there's this big thing where a lot of people thought Michael Perret had sung this song because they also put him in the music video as the guy who was singing the song, and then... It was like this whole like little war between like the John Cafferty fans that are like, no, this is really John Cafferty. It was like this whole thing. So that was like the scandal around oh. On the Dark Side, the music video, when Streets of Fire was filming. So people were wondering, like, <laughs> was he going to sing in this film and like yeah. prove that he could sing? But he doesn't. So, you know, whatever.
1: I read how this role almost went to Tom Cruise. And curious. I have many issues with Tom Cruise, but I will say good actor, very charismatic guy. And I think the character would have come off a lot differently if it were Tom Cruise. I could see it working. I think that the strength of the character would have been on Cruise's natural charisma as opposed to just Michael Paré's size and, you know, physical presence I almost want to be mean about his performance here and say, what do I think about Michael Parry's performance? Uh, I, I don't think anything of it because there isn't one. Because he's not really doing much with this role. It's very flat line. Just I thought of it as John Wayne by way of Rocky Balboa, uh, both in personality. Right, and in, I can
0: see that. Yeah. Getting in, that Western thing in there again. Yeah. He's
1: like got this. You know, too cool for school look about him, but he's got like that scruffy Rocky Balboa, you know, city punk kind of thing going on. Like, "Eh, I'm just a guy. I'm coming in. You know, what am I going to do? It's a thing. Yeah, right, Pilgrim.
0: See, to me, it was kind of a Brat Pack rendition of Robert Mitchum.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It is like merging styles, this character.
0: (laughs) Which is actually kind of appropriate for this movie that is a 1980s film that still feels 80s but then is bringing in the 50s and 40s and the thing that's cool about his intro though is that suddenly where we were once in this dystopic 1980s this is really where we get that 40s 50s thing introduced first Mm -hmm. a little bit with a typewriter because you're like this is a world in which typewriters and telegrams have remained the dominant technology
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, cool. <laughs> you know,
0: like maybe not super sufficient, but cool. Could
1: Reva not call Tom? Why does she have to send him a telegram?
0: As he walks into this landscape, like it is in the most like tropish 1940s noir style you possibly could do because he is going to emerge from the train. Only it's not going to be the train. It's going to be the the Chicago L. Yeah. So it's going to be like the subway. But he's going to emerge from a train and he's carrying two handheld suitcases. He's wearing this long trench coat and, like, the tilted hat. And he even has on suspenders. (laughs) So he's looking like some sort of, like, 1940s, like, farmer detective from a noir Dust Bowl era (laughs) space. Like, I don't know. It's fascinating. It's an amazing combo. And the suspenders. Oh, my God, the suspenders. But, yeah, suddenly you're like, oh, my God, we're doing some sort of like neo-noir, like what's happening? And he's going to walk directly to a diner, right? With the blinking neon lights over the diner. Uh Just even the way that the camera is going to frame these spaces of the streets and him walking through it and that sort of wide shot, it's... I mean, it is a master shot of the diner because we get the whole diner in it, but it's a claustrophobic one. It's not like the full pullback. It's like yeah. just enough of the frame so that we get the diner in it. But like, that's it. And that's a very noir thing. And so, yeah, we're suddenly in the 1940s and it's really spectacular. And so he kind of gives that inaccessible 1940s noir performance.
1: This is true. He walks into the diner. And while this is all happening over the opening credits, we have the strangest effect happening with these weird textured transition wipes because very often the screen will go to black and we'll get a name up there like it cuts to black Willem Dafoe we get his name and then there's I don't know how to describe it in a purely visual way to give you an idea if you haven't seen it. it it's kind of like a horizontal like imagine a horizontal wipe which would just be you have the black screen and then the next shot comes into view as the screen wipes from right to left But instead of just a flat line or a straight vertical line moving across the screen, it's this animated texture that's wriggling and chasing across the screen instead. And I had to slow this down and watch it frame by frame to get a good idea of what was going on because (laughs) I thought it was an instance of the black being removed. But as I paused and went frame by frame, I noticed that the shots of the next scene appear over the black and also over the white text, and the black and white text can be seen through the speckles of the next scene. So it's as if the physical film strip of the next shot is coming down into view, but that film strip has been torn and shredded a little bit, like, and frayed at its bottom before it comes down into view completely
0: yes what the fuck yeah like how (laughs) how is this done
1: like what the yeah i could not find any information on what was actually happening i'm assuming that what happened here was that it is a form of animation where they took high contrast pictures of something created masks out of that and in an optical printing process again optical printing just keeps coming up in our episodes I mean, we do a
0: lot of 1980s, 70s and 80s films, you
1: know? Yeah, there there you go. They projected the original negative and they covered it with this black mat. And the image that went on to the next you know, generation of film was the image from the next scene, but it was blocked out before we can see the whole thing. God, it is really hard to describe. Uh, I have never this. seen
0: a screen wipe like this. I have, yeah. To me, it evoked the idea of just, like, Jaws, like, the little shark just, like, eating its wings across the screen.
1: Sharp, frayed things happening across the film.
0: And so this is another, yeah, it's another pure cinema moment coming in, right? Because technically, the story's going on, the action is happening, and I am so excited by these screen wipes. Like, I'm just waiting (laughs) for the next screen wipe to come, and I'm like, holy shit, what is happening with these screen wipes? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but I really hope they continue throughout the entire film. Like I am in this for these screen wipes, and that's pretty incredible.
1: Cody walks into the diner, orders up uh, some coffee, black, and Reva, who we met earlier, is serving up coffee. And an element that the film takes a long time to explain is that Reva and Cody are brother and sister.
0: Yeah, did not get that initially. No, Holy shit.
1: no, and. They, When they first see each other, they look at each other, and they smile, and they nod, and they're happy to see each other. And presumably, Reva sent the telegram that said, Tom, come home. I need you. So, you have a movie where one character is saying to another, I need you. They're both played by really beautiful people. You uh, want to know, are they fucking? Are these two characters fucking? What is going on with these two people?
0: Have they fucked? Yeah. Will they fuck? Yeah. Are they fucking right this second?
1: Or like, and then you find out they're brother and sister and they still have like some really good on-screen chemistry. You're like, whoa. So once again,
0: I'm like, are they fucking? Yeah. Have is they this fucked? like a, Will they fuck?
1: kind of a Folgers commercial? What are we doing here?
0: Doesn't happen with them, apparently, because Tom Hart or Tom Hardy, Tom Cody, he's uh, <laughs> he's not quick to jump in the sack with people because he's still a little hung up. On his ex-girlfriend, Ellen Ames.
1: That's... Yes. And after he's beat up a crew of guys that come in to rough up the diner...
0: In a slap fight, by in, the way. In a
1: slap fight. And what's crazy is that when these guys show up, Reva tells them, you guys missed all the action. The bombers were here earlier tonight, and they they had all the fun. So I remember, like, catching that in, like the my last watch through of this film is Reva says the bombers were here earlier and they messed everything up. So she's saying that the events of the opening were the same evening as now when Tom is now at the diner. So that means that Reva sent the telegram, Tom got the telegram, and came back to town all in the span of the same few hours of this night. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess telegrams were like instant messaging back then. You just immediately yeah, got it. You're like, I mean
0: like you go over radio waves, right? And then like... So maybe, yeah, this is prophesizing the idea of like instant messaging and text (laughs) really is a movie of the future.
1: (laughs) Who knows? Yes. But there is a slap fight with this really second rate gang. They're like the orphans from the Warriors. These guys, they suck. Tom just like makes fools out of all of them, slaps them around, is able to just take a butterfly knife away from this guy without any problem, Breaks some windows. They leave their car. Tom takes the car. They go riding around joy riding and some cops pull over Tom and Riva, and in a weird moment that I'm like yeah this is like one of those moments where I'll believe the impossible but I won't believe the improbable cops pull over Tom and they say license and registrations I don't have it oh well you be you watch yourself yeah and then they just leave him be like no <laughs> no cops are not doing that <laughs>
0: well maybe the cops in our world, don't do that. But this is a different time and place. That's true. This another time, time and place. Another place. We don't know their lives. This is a lawless Western landscape, yeah. and sometimes you just don't have your paperwork, you know. Or maybe they just think he's pretty.
1: That yeah, they're just like, oh, we can arrest you. you. You're too good looking, Tom. God damn, look at you, you, you puppy dog I mean, he guys. He is pretty.
0: Like for all oh, the no, things we were Par- saying about his performance, he is pretty. I'll say
1: yeah, many things about his performance. Michael Perry is a fucking beautiful man. So.
0: So he can steal a car and get away with it. It's yeah, fine. It's the all science good. science works out.
1: It's great. Well, what's even funnier is that after he drives away, the cops are talking and the older veteran cop says, yeah, I busted him a few years ago. He had a gun in the glove compartment. I thought, wow, this guy sounds like a really dangerous guy you just let go.
0: Yeah, whatever. These stolen cars, though. OK, so the stolen car. Oh, yeah. is, is really this, the important part. Is this a Studebaker? What no, is this? the stolen car is not a Studebaker. The stolen car is a 1951 Mercury convertible. Oh, OK. So the Mercuries were a subdivision offshoot of Ford Motors cars, and they were discontinued around 1951. They were kind of the higher luxury, like, fancy version of a Ford. Mm -hmm. And they have a really cool little, like, very distinctive, like, 1950s body shape. They didn't make them after 1951. So in this another time and another place, like, that Mercury lived on. And so that's pretty great. Same thing with the Studebakers, where they come in is that... The cops, all of the cop cars, are going to be Studebakers from the, 19, like the 1950 and the 1951 models. So Studebakers were their own line of cars at one point. They originated from a company that initially produced carriages and then kind of moved into cars when cars and automobiles became a thing. And they're going to have a pretty steady little run in the early automobile industry. And are going to merge with Packard in 1954. And so that's when you kind of start seeing the Studebaker name go away. There was a brief Studebaker revival in the 1960s where they kind of tried to bring the name back in this little Uh. retro nostalgia thing, like kind of a decade later. But they were officially discontinued in 1966. So there are no Studebakers that came out after 1966. So this (laughs) is a world in which Studebakers and Mercury's, like, they lived on. And that's pretty great. And so... There are some classical car fans like Roger Ebert who just really love their Studebakers because they do have kind of a distinct look, but I think it's more of a nostalgia thing, really, because they were very popular for a a flash moment.
1: Well, they drop off this Mercury in front of Reva's apartment. Reva's like, you gotta go rescue Ellen. I gotta rescue... He goes off to a bar. She's like,
0: you used to fuck her, and so it's really important that you go save your girlfriend from Bowser who has stolen her and locked her away in his castle. And you know he still cares because he pulls this 1940s-style war portrait out of his wallet (laughs) to just look at her. And it's another really great production choice. It's this black-and-white photo with the really soft lighting of Ellen Ames, and yeah, it's just another little 1940s thing suddenly coming in. To this world. Yeah.
1: And to, cool. to deal with his emotions, he goes to a bar, as most men do when they want to deal with emotions, he sits down for a drink. Bill paxton's the bartender, pours him one. And then we meet the true hero of this movie, McCoy. Yeah. McCoy. McCoy. McCoy is so badass. McCoy is this other, she's this woman who's. You know, with like this weird scrappy blonde hair, and Bill Paxton's character is like, "Hey, I don't care for you anymore. You need to pay up." What's he says? You need to pay up, and she reaches into her pocket and like just plops some coins. The the coins clink on the counter, and I thought, okay, this is definitely another time in another place because. You would never be able to pay for a large bar tab with just coins. Maybe another time in another place means Toronto, and she's just got a, a bunch of like, you know, one loony and two loony coins in her pocket. Twoonies. Yeah, the, the, loonies the, loonies and toonies. And the, the loonies and the loonies and the twoonies. Yeah, <laughs> plunks those down. Canada's coins are awesome, by the way. We need to like copy what Canada does with their money. They're they're badass.
0: Yeah. Well we actually could use Canadian coins interchangeably. Oh, that's, that's which is so nice. fun. I've told this story to you before, but it's still one of my favorite things. that I don't live up north anymore and my mother came down to visit and she was at a grocery store and she's buying a pack of gum real quick or something. And one of the coins that she was trying to use was like a Canadian dime or something. Oh. And the guy goes to like hand it back to her and he's like, Um, it looks like you have like a foreign coin in here and she like looks at it and she's like, It's Canadian and he's like, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's Canadian. Yes. And she's it's like, foreign. yeah, it's Canadian. And it was this back and forth of them just saying it's Canadian at <laughs> each other for like what seemed like 20 minutes. And so finally I had to like intervene. I was like, yeah, let's see. Um, uh, Mom, like Canada's a different country down here. So yeah, you, you can't <laughs> but, do yeah, that. Like, I mean, the thing that's with Canadian coins is there's not actually a currency exchange rate between U.S. and Canadian. There are for dollars, but not for the actual like metal coins. So they're totally interchangeable. hmm. But apparently not everywhere. I guess not.
1: Well, after McCoy (laughs) drops a bunch of loonies and toonies, we'll assume, on the counter, Bill packs and then just says, all right, you're paid up. But now I don't like your face, so you got to go. And McCoy just punches him right in the face, knocks him down, jumps over the bar, looks over at Cody, just says, yeah, what do you want? Uh, I like tequila. Okay, great. Just takes a bottle of tequila from the bar and they head out. What I love about this character is that apparently McCoy was written as A man was like an older, like kind of fat soldier who just needed a good break or like wasn't a bad time. And then Amy Madigan was auditioning for the movie and apparently auditioned for the role of Reva, but then read the role of McCoy. And she's like, no, no, you guys got to make this a woman and I got to play her. And I guess Walter Hill just is like, oh, strong flex. You got it. All right, cool.
0: Yeah, it is a really great choice.
1: I imagine that they rewrote a little bit of the character because if this role was originally a man and the script changed at, did not change at all, it really makes it weird when Tom is flirting with her later on or not sort of. Not necessarily.
0: Well, I guess it would for 1984. But like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anybody who comes and is like, hey, because they're going to interact at some point, she's mm-hmm. like, I need a place to sleep. And he's yeah. like, fine, but we ain't fucking. She's like, that's fine. I don't want to fuck you either. And that can be an exchange between any two human beings that don't want to fuck each other because it's always possibly on the table. We actually got that in the 8mm, right? When Nick Cage and Joaquin Phoenix, he's like, hey, can I pay you to come to my motel? And Joaquin's like, um, we're not going to fuck, right? And he's like, nah, I just need you to look at some snuff videos. And he's like, okay, that's chill. Oh, yeah, so, that's, that's a good you know. time. You gotta lay down your parameters of what you're comfortable with.
1: The exchange is something more along the lines of like when they're walking to the car, she's like, "Hey, do you have a, a place for the, I can stay for the night?" He says, "Oh, you're looking for a quick tumble," and then that's when she says, uh, "I don't want to disappoint you here, but you're not my type." And that's something that she says multiple times throughout the movie, and that really made me wonder like, is McCoy in the final product here? Is McCoy possibly being coded? Because she keeps telling Tom, like, yeah, you're not my type. And she never has any interest in any of the other guys that she comes across in the film. I have to wonder, like, oh, is there something there that maybe they just couldn't really do as much as they wanted to in 1984 with this character? Yeah, I mean, there's
0: definitely a lot of coding that happens throughout the decades, um, through the 80s. Yeah, I think you could read her either way, that mm-hmm. either she can be like, I'm not into assholes like you. Or, yeah, yeah it could be a queer coding moment. What would be fascinating, too, is if the script wasn't changed that much, in which case it would be Tom Cody that's being coded here, Oh where yeah. if he kind of keeps bringing it up of, hey, you wanna, right? And it's like, no, you're not my type, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I get that you're into, you know, like other dudes, other soldiers that you pick up on the street, but like, not my thing, right? So I think there's some coding going on, but which one is being coded yeah. has some flexibility. Of course, in my headcanon, we've got both of them being queer coded and... They're just, you know, like, two gay friends that don't want to fuck each other because...
1: It happens, yeah. yeah. That's great. It's a good time. It's but true. But either way,
0: like, she doesn't... Yeah, she doesn't want to do him. And I there's something really refreshing about having, yeah, these two leads that... And especially in an 80s film, this, like, female and male lead that just... Do not want to interact with each other's yeah. genitals. I'm like, I respect that. It's,
1: it's, def- it's not a will they won't they thing going on in the movie. They're just no, they won't. They will not. Not gonna happen at all. She is just a badass helping yeah, and out. And she's a soldier. Badass.
0: And we know yeah. this because she's always packing. Oh yeah. Like she always has her gun. <laughs> she's like, I told you I'm a soldier. Yeah. And you're like, all right, go sleeps
1: That's- with it like the the gun underneath her pillow. And after she settles down, that like Tom has this brief flashback to Ellen singing in black and white. And we mentioned earlier how it's very obvious, like, all the scenes of Ellen singing are just the same set from the opening musical number. Because it's in black and white, but there are still those neon light fixtures behind her in the brief moments. Hair's still the
0: same, outfits are still the same. So, yeah, we're just reusing all of those pieces of film that we could get. Sister comes in and is like, hey, you let this chick sleep on my couch. It's like, yeah.
1: Give her some coffee. Also, oh, yeah, I'll rescue Ellen. Uh, I'm going to do it for money, though. So we got to set that up. And so the next day, he heads over to the diner to meet Billy Fish. And Billy Fish is like, come on. Dude. <laughs> I love all of Rick Moranis' lines in this movie are either, I'm an asshole or I want to be making money or something along those lines. Because yeah. Cody walks to the diner where Billy Fish is having some coffee. And he says, hey, you there, you Billy Fish? Yeah, I'm Billy Fish. Talk fast. My time is valuable.
0: <laughs> it is, Rick Moranis. It is. And you can tell because of the suit he has on. And <laughs> oh my about, God, that suit. Tell
1: me about this suit. So he
0: is wearing a checkered tweed suit on top of a striped shirt. And he's got a zigzag bow tie on. And all of these pieces of clothing are in these like maroon brown scale colors. And it is working. It is so working. Meanwhile, McCoy is going to show up later. Well, she's actually off talking to with Cody's sister in yeah. a scene that I do kind of want to talk about because it's beautiful. And she's going to be wearing a leather baseball cap over this like <laughs> yeah. Wayne's World hair.
1: Oh, I love it! Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's got like Garth hair or something. It's, it, it's
0: nuts. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what is what is happening here? At these clothing selections they're great but yeah when mccoy is talking to cody's sister they're walking around the streets of richmond slash chicago slash the studio and it is a very cool gray scale that's happening here because it's not like early 2000s gray it's this real mixtured mixed textured palette of these muted color wheel options and it's really cool so Camera dude, what's happening?
1: So, yes, yeah, so what's happening here that's fascinating? Like, yeah, it's all very soft lights and it definitely feels like a studio backlot because it is a studio backlot. To me, the, the big giveaway of a street set is that the streets always have, like, blind alleys in them. There's always, like, a sharp corner about hundred yards away. It's never the street never extends into the distance for very long. And that happens a lot here. And the lighting is super soft even though it's supposed to be outside. And reading about this fascinated me. So this movie had a budget of 14.5 million dollars. And apparently three million dollars of that went to making this gigantic tarp that would be strung over the set for the purpose of filming night scenes during the day. Because there were a lot of young people on this cast, including Diane Lane, and apparently some of them were so young that child labor laws would come into effect if they filmed them past a certain hour. So they built this giant tarp to cover the daylight to make it night so they could film stuff during the day and like not have to break child labor laws. And then... Andrew Laszlo, the cinematographer for this thing, wanted to figure out how they could make all the daylight scenes for this neighborhood soft because he didn't want harsh shadows because they didn't feel like that really matched the style. And then when he showed up early one day, he noticed some workers trying to repair holes in the tarp and he realized that light was coming through the tarp and only hitting certain areas of the set. So he says, okay, how about instead of having to use harsh natural daylight, which direct sunlight has very harsh shadows and it's not flattering at all in actors' faces. And if you want to create a dreamy landscape, that's just, you can't do it, it's not the way to go. So in addition to having this gigantic tarp that was hanging over the set, they also made holes in the tarp and pulled silk over those holes. So anytime that we're in this nice neighborhood during the daytime, you're seeing natural sunlight filtered through silk screens. Awesome. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind that really so much work was put into this tarp hanging over the set all the time, making holes in the tarp to film the daylight scenes. Just not So The making of this movie should just be the making of the tarp. Tell me how the hell they made this gigantic, huge, <laughs> opaque piece of plastic cloth or whatever that was hanging over this thing I, I sort of the dimensions I, I read on it were insane it was something like 300 feet wide by 3000 feet long or, or something it was like nuts uh, how big this thing had to be it's
0: like the light boxes on Sleepy Hollow but yeah. tarp. <laughs> something like that
1: yeah and a lot of the lines had to be redubbed or ADR'd because the wind would catch the tarp and like a lot of the scenes you couldn't mm. hear what the actors were saying because you would just hear like this flap 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 from the tarp overhead
0: yeah that that makes a lot of sense actually yeah Yeah, it's fascinating how different you can make a landscape just by changing and shifting the light of course yeah you you and I are big on that because we both are really obsessed with cinematography but (laughs) just to yeah think of that extreme realism coming in and once again how that's being done a lot of it is thanks to Laszlo who also will work with Walter Hill multiple times. He also did the cinematography on the Warriors, which Mm -hmm. is another reason why the spaces feel so similar (laughs) between the two is because they're lit very similarly.
1: He didn't work with them on 48 Hours, and I have to say, like, you watch 48 Hours and this back-to-back, you wouldn't guess stylistically they're related. 48 Hours is a well-done film, but it does not at all have any of the polish or style that the Warriors or Streets of Fire would have.
0: From the scenes I've seen of 48 Hours, though, I can still see the hill world creation because there still is that just pumping in of i can kind of remember the scene with the alleyway where just all of that fog and smoke is coming out and mm-hmm. there seems to be some pink neon lighting happening behind the smoke down the alley. And so there's like something about, once again, that gritty, extreme realism. It's there, like It's but a yeah, Walter Hill
1: world. It's not the same flavor of that, though, I have to say. Like, I think it really does come down to your cinematographer there. I think in 48 Hours, Walter Hill knew, yeah, he, I want fog. I want these neon lights. But he had a different camera guy working on that and he took those elements made them his own but it wasn't quite the same as like what you would mm-hmm. get with warriors or streets of fire but it's you which know. if
0: we ever do Mandy we'll see the difference between beyond the black rainbow and Mandy when you take away the cinematographer <laughs> oh,
1: Mandy. holy shit I'm your god
0: now Anyway, yeah, we've got this really gorgeous scene that creates these very muted grayscale things that aren't sharp and cold like they are in 2000s grayscales, just a really beautiful kind of like soft grayscale light. And inside the interior of this bar, when finally McCoy shows back up, we get finally the pitch fully of this film, which is Rick Moranis is going to fund this expedition of Tom Cody's to take his little soldier McCoy sidekick to go rescue Princess Peach (laughs) <laughs> from Bowser. And that's, that's pretty much the plot of this yeah. film, once again. That's
1: that's basically it. He's going to pay him $10,000 to do it. And they're, they're off. And as they're getting into the car to go to the Battery, the neighborhood that Ellen is presumably being held, McCoy wants to come along. And we get some lines that Janet Maslin, her New York Times review, brought up. Listen, skirt, we're not going to bring any broads along on this trip or whatever. And it was weird to me because I thought... Okay, do you not get that, that Billy Fish is meant to be the asshole in this movie? This is not the movie's moral center speaking to McCoy here and being misogynistic. He's just an asshole, but...
0: Yeah, but Tom Cody, our moral center, is later just going to punch Ellen Ames in the face. So, across
1: the board... Yeah, like... now that uh, yeah, what's it, which Jan Maslin didn't bring up in her review, oddly enough. That wasn't one of the things she said was misogynistic. She just says, like, oh, he calls her a skirt. This movie's misogynistic. I... I there are many things you could call this movie out on. That's not one of them. I'm sorry.
0: What seems even weirder about calling her a skirt here is it seems pretty far off the mark yeah. because she's <laughs> in these mechanic overalls and this leather cap and her hair clearly hasn't been brushed in like three months. So I'm not really <laughs> sure where we're getting skirt from. But fine. Rick Moranis is our little token asshole and he's having fun with it. So a lot of stuff is just going to ensue here. We'll cover one more scene then we'll just kind of... Really quick, um, brush everything else down. But we're going to go to a strip club. We have another strip club, another movie that we're doing that has a strip club. (laughs) This one is by far the most fun in some ways. It's a roadhouse bar. It's got orange lighting. It's a little coyote ugly style where we've got the strippers that are up on the bar dancing their little hearts out in these amazing clothes. So we've got like this full fishnet bodysuit and a black crop top t shirt and these black fingerless gloves and black high hip kind of panties that were popular during the time and it's a great look.
1: And what's fascinating here is that this dancer is uh, played by a woman named Marie Jahan. and the movie she did previous to this was Flashdance where she was Jennifer Beals' dance double. So Jennifer Beals plays the <laughs> character and this woman did the dancing. And the review I found of the Washington Post on this movie has this quote that is so fucking weird. This is from Gary Arnold and he says... Uh, Strutting provocatively in a G-string and cut-off vinyl blouse, Jahan reveals an alarmingly stripped-down, sexually ambiguous physique. The flash dance people knew what they were up to when it came to erotic deception. Jahan may have provided the key dance moves, but the fantasy would have shriveled up without Beals' voluptuous flesh for the camera to feast on. Wow, that's a movie review from the nineteen eighties. I mean, where the hell is Janet Maslin uh about the misogyny here? Good Lord. <laughs> that's a fucking creepy quote.
0: So basically I'd say I'm like what the body double dancer was like a great dancer and all, but she didn't have Jennifer Peel's ass. Is that I don't the know. takeaway?
1: I I or boobs or didn't look feminine enough. But it's an. She's doing an awesome dance. I hope that this dancer has a tip jar because she's doing some work on that stage. She, she is just like strutting around, bending over, like like going down on her haunches, hopping back up, almost nipping up a few times, like just from a flat lane position to like suddenly sitting upright and standing immediately. She's putting in some work here, so I hope she she has a tip or like you know a uh sec like uh you know. Someone bringing around the tip jar or something. This woman needs to be making all of the tips for the dancing that she's doing.
0: Enter William Defoe, and William Defoe <laughs> is wearing rubber latex leather overalls and nothing this else. This is
1: from Oshkosh's uh, S and M line. <laughs> yes, yes. And he heads in to visit a tied-up Ellen Aim and sits down this is like the first time we actually hear anything from Willem Dafoe and he just says look I'm not a bad guy I just get excited around pretty girls stay here fall in love with me for a week and she is not into it at all he leans down to kiss her and it cuts away and this movie really glosses over the fact that he's most likely raping this woman
0: yeah, and we don't know how long she's been up here either, because like time, it doesn't matter in this place. It does.
1: It's definitely been at least one night. So We know that, because she gets kidnapped, Tom's back in town, he sleeps on the idea of rescuing her, and now it's the following night. So Ellen has been tied up for at least 24 hours at this point.
0: Yeah, so the sexual assault that's happening here is ambiguous in the way that it is in the super mario brothers game because like what else has bowser (laughs) taken princess peach to his castle to do but they're gonna kind of like draw it out right they're gonna play around with it because he's got william defoe has other things to do other than to have sex with this woman right now because he's got these overalls on and that's a lot to take (laughs) off so he's just gonna go off somewhere and we're gonna get the long sequence. So these are the parts where, like, the movie starts to feel a little bit long when uh, they're just running around the town, yeah, trying to get her back.
1: They're running around. Rick Moranis' character is just like assumed, like that she's in this bar. I remember that place. It's a shithole. Let's go there. And thankfully, he guesses correct that she's in the place. They get a little uh insider info from a bum who's just wandering around these steam pipes outside the place like oh yeah she's totally in that building uh give me some money and they give him some money and this guy is played by ed Bakely jr and you wouldn't know to look at him and he's awesome he's a young ed bakeley jr most people know him from future man Mm
0: -hmm. so it's weird that rick moranis seems to know exactly where she is so i don't know why he had to pay somebody 10 grand to go get her because there are kind of cops in this world but whatever so we're gonna have this like whole thing where yeah rick moranis and co Tom, Cody, and McCoy are going to go. They're going to rescue her pretty quickly, actually. It's just going to happen. They're going to go in. They're going to stature her. McCoy is going to be a decoy. Decoy McCoy. Yeah. And there's going to be this whole stunt-coordinated action sequence of motorcycles yes. <laughs> out on the streets where the streets do catch fire. And so that's um, like a whole thing. Yeah,
1: Tom shoots the motorcycles as a distraction. And the motorcycles all have a horrible case of explosions. Because he takes one shot at these things, and they just blow the fuck up. And it's strange, too, because earlier he says something like, I don't have to kill anybody. Motorcycles don't work so well when you shoot a hole in them. Which is all fair and good, but they're all blowing up on one single shot, so...
0: Because this is the interior space of a 14-year-old boy's fantasy world. In which case, you shoot a motorcycle and it explodes. I don't
1: have to kill anyone. I will give them third-degree burns over 90% of their body, though. Like, uh...
0: Yeah, right lines. Yeah. You Lines. Know, we all have our line. We pick it. <laughs> but what's going to happen here is that the streets are going to catch fire from all of the slick oil and these exploding mm-hmm. motorcycles. And William Defoe is going to come emerging from the fiery streets. Oh, my God. And holy fuck. This is such a cool these shot. He's got crazy too. eyes. Yeah. He looks a little bit like Koopa Troopa slash Bowser yeah. or something. You know, like he, he's working it.
1: And it's weird because he has an accent for this one scene. Where earlier, I did his voice earlier on, and it's like, I'm not a bad guy, I just get excited around girls. Now he walks out and he says, well, looks like I found someone who likes blowing things up as much as I do. Like, what? Why are you trying to talk like Foghorn Lakehorn all of a sudden. What is this voice? It's a little strange. Choices.
0: Choices are made. He's crazy. He can do what he wants. He's just
1: crazy. And Tom's like, I got a gun. Don't fuck with me. And he's like, I'm good at finding guns. I'm coming for her. I'm coming for you, too. All right, fine. And then out of nowhere, he's like, also, one other thing. Tis bad not to kill a seabird. And Tom's like, OK, thanks. I don't know what that has to do with anything.
0: His hair looks a little bit like a seabird still here in this <laughs> shot. So it all comes back around. yes. it's got a lighthouse reference. Don't don't listen to Benji. He's nuts. And we're gonna cut to the mean green streets. Oh, and it's yeah. a very cool choice to cut in this manner because we have the blazing orange fire behind us for a bunch of frames. And then, the filter on the lights on these streets that they're driving through is very distinctively green. Mm -hmm. And we get a little bit of that simultaneous contrast we talked about on Beyond the Black Rainbow, where when you have these two juxtaposing colors, contrasting colors from the color wheel, it's actually going to have an interesting optical effect and really punch up the opposing color. And so since we have had orange on the screen for so long... Suddenly, these streets look really green, optically speaking. And so it's a, it's a fun little kind of color cut. And it'll, mm-hmm. very similar to what they were doing with the blue and red in the earlier opening shot of the rock concert. Yeah. Just really punching up those contrasts.
1: It's good that it's beautiful because it's there's some dialogue. They're drawn between Ellen and Cody. Doesn't fucking matter. No one cares. Whatever.
0: Yeah, at some point they steal a bus.
1: Yeah. At one point, you think a music video is starting up because... We're now in like this totally different neighborhood. Everyone's wearing like bright colors. It's like, I guess they're meant to be the rich neighborhood, but it's always like we get about two seconds of footage dipped to black and a new song is starting up. And we get video of Ellen singing a song and you're like, wait, why does it feel like a music video is starting up? And then the camera pulls away from a television set in the bar and we realize, oh, we're watching a music video. And that was so striking to me because it doesn't seem like music videos are a thing in the world of this movie because music videos are a very 80s thing and a very freshly 80s thing. And like I said earlier on, The music video that we're seeing is more in line with the style of music videos that were on mtv back in the early 80s where it's just a few shots of a singer walking around a stage and doing their song or walking around a set as would have been the case for this in-universe music video but i always found that hilarious like oh oh this actually is a music video and appropriately it's a shitty music video you know per 1984.
0: yeah but the way that we're going to get this information another great pure cinema moment where it is going to flash between the Ellen Ames music video and just the street that they are walking down. So they've re-emerged in a more populated area that has people kind of waiting out under marquee signs of theaters and whatnot. And just kind of street landscapes that are a little bit Lost Boys opening Santa Carla, like kind of in nature, that just show the scape of the people who live here. And yet, we're only going to get those in heartbeats. Yeah. The rhythm and the tempo of the editing here is fascinating because it's going to cut between street scene, and then we get a soft kind of fade to black, and then we're going to get a shot of the music video, and then it's gonna fade to black, and then we're gonna get another shot of the street in a completely different location, fade to black. And this is gonna be coming on the actual tempo beats of the music that we're hearing from Ellen's music video. And we're not getting enough of the shot fully each time to fully comprehend the full image that we're seeing because they're very quick. Yeah, And it really calls attention to the editing and the tempo here rather than what's actually happening on the screen. So once again, pure cinema, the technical components of the film, and it does create that sense of narrative of time is passing and we're wandering past things. So it is actually carving out the narrative in a pure cinema way. It's cool. It's really it, cool. I really liked that moment.
1: Sadly, it's for the worst song in, in the movie, which is this this weird slow melodic ballad of Ellen uh, singing, "I'm tired, I'm so, so." Like this is not like the pulse pounding music that we heard at the beginning of the movie or that we will hear at the end. So I thought, oh, okay. I like the I like the editing choices. The song sucks, though, so... Yeah, what are I you feel gonna... like
0: this might be the Stevie Nicks one, but uh, i have can, to look I can
1: see up. that. That does, like, yeah, have that, like, slow Stevie Nicks. I would like it more if it were Stevie Nicks. I would enjoy it <laughs> if it were, like, a music video with Stevie Nicks in it. That would be really cool. But as it is here, like, eh, whatever. But a fan recognizes Ellen. They starts wanting to talk to her, and she's like, dude fuck off, we got to go do things. Oh, well, you guys should be careful because the cops are around and they realize, oh, the cops are around. They know that we were fucking at the battery. We got to do something. So Tom just walks out into the street and I call this the Grand Theft Auto Car Stop because he walks right into the street and just holds his hand out and a bus stops a foot away from him. And this is a practical effect. I have to imagine that they had a bus on a tow cable and some sort of concrete stop that could stop the bus in its tracks because, my God, this thing get really close to him? In the universe of the movie, you would have to say, wow, it's a really good thing that driver saw Tom there. Otherwise, Tom would have gotten rolled over. And... In making the movie, you would have to think to yourself, wow, it's a good thing that stunt driver can land in a dime. Otherwise, Michael Paré would have been flattened.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, it's probably a cable stop, I would imagine.
1: Something like, yeah, it was like a really good one. Michael Paré is like, I'm really going to trust that this thing is going to stop in front of me when it needs to. So they take up the bus, which is being driven by this other group called the Sorels. They're a, uh, for, a quartet, doo up quartet, and I don't know, some other shit happens.
0: Yeah, the tire breaks for some the reason. McCoy changes it. You're like, we don't know why yeah. they got a flat tire, but we get some really cool shots like of the tire being changed, so it's fine. Yeah.
1: The movie almost passes the Bechtel test because Ellen is talking to her fan about her music. I say almost because the Bechtel test is two female characters have names, talk about something that's not a man. And the two female characters talk about something that's not a man, but we don't really know what her fan's name is. I don't think it's ever set in the movie. In the credits, it's something like Baby Doll or something, but mm-hmm. eh, almost. Almost, yeah, movie. This is
0: another example of why the Bechdel test is actually bullshit. <laughs> so there was this one theory of, called the Bechdel test, which was supposed to determine whether a film can even start to qualify as a non-misogynistic film or have actual kind of female characters in it. And that was if you have two women on the screen that are engaged in a conversation with each other involving a topic that is anything other than a man or their love lives. The thing that's interesting about the Bechdel test is how astoundingly hard it is to find movies often that actually <laughs> yeah. fulfill this criteria it's kind of crazy yeah but the problem with it as a guidepost is that you can still have some incredibly problematic misogynistic films that do squeak by With things like Streets of Fire or like The Room passes the Bechdel test. So it uh, actually is not a great signpost, but it is a fun exercise to kind of just see if you can find two women in a film that are talking about something other than Dick.
1: I'm pretty sure in The Room, it literally is just the line about breast cancer that passes the test.
0: Yeah, there's this really random line that's thrown out in the room with the mother like, well, I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. And then it's never spoken Don't about again. Don't worry
1: about it. You'll be fine.
0: <laughs> but back to this movie. So, yeah, they're just going to drive around at some point the next day. Fan, still there, still in the apartment. Oh, yeah. And Tom Cody is going to say what everybody's thinking, like, the fuck you still doing <laughs> here? <laughs> as she's walking out the door. At the same
1: time I'm like, "Why do you what's the animosity here, Tom? What problem do you you have?" Well,
0: she's a random fan that's just like hanging out in the apartment. It's weird. But this apartment is pretty great because we're going to get this shot that has this really excellent lamp and the pattern on the wallpaper is super cool. And then they have this very early 1980s poster that's just like shapes and colors on the wall, too. The set design, it's nice. And Tom Cody is going to come in here and he's going to have had a little bit of change of heart because of, you know, like reasons and like stuff oh, that's happened. Oh, yeah. whatever. And
1: not, not important.
0: He's here to collect his money, presumably, because Ellen Ames, she has like a confrontation with him earlier where she finds out like he only came back and is saving her from Bowser because of the money. And she's like, the fuck. Right. And his defense was, I do what I'm good at and I do it for money. Yeah. you are like, all right, fair. That? Like, it's a very Walter Hill line, like, yeah. to the point. Right? <laughs> like, minimalist <laughs> to the point. And so she's going to come in there, or he's going to come into the apartment that she shares with Rick Moranis, because actually, like, Rick Moranis is her current boyfriend, so he's funding this expedition. Mm-hmm. He's her manager um, on the stage, but he, they're also fucking off screen apparently. And so Tom Cody's going to come in and make a big display of only taking the $1,000 that he owes McCoy, because he always pays his debts, but he gives back the other 9000 Right in front of Ellen Ames, and she's like, "Wait, this must mean he's a changed man." So uh, she runs after him in the rain. This rain is actually great. It's a really great production rain. thing.
1: This is once is again all the rain happening on on this scene. It's insane. It's just
0: pouring down, and we've got a lot of like 1950s stuff happening here. And well, I guess oh yeah, the I guess the pattern wallpaper and the light and the poster are all pyramid shaped. Forgot about that. But yeah, so she's going <laughs> to run out.
1: Oh, I got to mention that, by the way. It's
0: very important. I love the production design. <laughs> she's wearing those 1950s capris. She's in heels versus his Dust Bowl rags. And they're going to just kiss Ooh. in the rain on the street because he saved her reluctantly and gave back the nine grand. And this is enough to get Diane Lane going. And so they're going to go back. They're gonna have sex, I guess, at his sister's place because, uh, like, mm, she yeah. shares her apartment with Billy Fish, right?
1: Maybe they just went back to Billy Fish's apartment and he's just like, hey, what are you guys and doing in there? Hey, my time is valuable. Hey, come on. What's going on there? What are you guys doing? Yeah, you know, I like that image. Maybe
0: more. he's into it. I mean, I don't know yeah. his life. But <laughs> the fun thing, too, is that, like, they're still covered in all this rainwater during their sex yeah. scene. And it's a fun, right choice.
1: It begs the question, did they have super hot, passionate sex, and now they're just covered and drenched in sweat? Or did they have really quick sex and not even have time to dry off?
0: I mean, it definitely looks like rainwater. I mean, it definitely still just looks like they're very wet from the rain. And it's just it's kind of a cool textured moment, even though once again, if it doesn't make much logical (laughs) sense, the story is getting carved out through the technicalities. And then we're going to get these amazing 80s mass transportation shots. And I love 80s mass transportation shots. Most of these are going to be on the Chicago L, um, the L train, yeah. and they're going all about kind of risky business style or whatnot. And then Tom Cody, being the hero that he is, he realizes this is no place for a delicate woman, I need to see this out because the bombers are still out there and she's in danger. So there's only one thing that I can do to protect her. Only one? And that is to just cold clock punch her in the face (laughs) and leave her unconscious body Uh. on the Chicago L train.
1: With McCoy, you know, he's like, get her as far away from here as you can.
0: Cause hero. This is what heroes do. He's going to continue on without Ellen or McCoy. We're going to get to the end of the ride at some point because he's going to try to change trains. And this train's just not going. So he Mm -hmm. goes and he knocks on the window to ask the conductor at gunpoint, if I can remember correctly. We got to keep going. She's like, hey, we can't because you see the bombers. They fucked up this track. And we pan ahead. And sure enough, the tracks are on fire. They've just set everything on fire. Meanwhile, I got to respect that this train conductor is still just sitting in the main car (laughs) reading a magazine, even though it's clear that these tracks are probably not going to be usable for at least a couple days. But, you know, she's committed to Sparkle Motion.
1: This is a cool cameo from Lynn Thickman, who was the DJ in The Warriors. And I didn't really know this until researching this. She was also the chief in Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. I don't know if you ever watched that show or not, but I watched that show. Well, fuck yeah. Yeah, I watched that show all the time on PBS back in the day. And yeah, that kind of blows my mind that like Lynn Thickman shared two very disparate universes of entertainment, the Warriors and the Kids Geography Show.
0: Fuck yeah. Excellent.
1: Excellent.
0: (laughs) Now, we get the most menacing Way to blow an air horn ever.
1: <laughs> yes, we're we're back in the main neighborhood, and Raven has come by because he's told the cops like I want to fight Tom Cody one on one, and if I can't, there's gonna be problems. And when Tom Cody is not there, the cops sure they're present. They said, well, we're gonna have to take you in. I've got a better idea, and yeah, pulls out this metallic iron air horn, holds it down, and you can actually see. I don't know what you call it, but like the air, the air coming out of the air horn as it blows this tone for a super long time, and a, now an army of bikers is arriving.
0: Yes, it summons those leather-clad biker armies from the depths with this giant horn. Leaving is going to punch another dude in the face, this time Rick Moranis.
1: He just does that. Yeah, Rick yeah. Moranis comes up and says, hey, what's going on here? Where's Ellen at? My time is very valuable. My clothes are very expensive. What are you guys doing? You're I make more money than you. Punch.
0: That's all that takes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cody and Raven are going to fight. And the police are actually going to condone this because at some point they're going to try to intervene and it doesn't work. And so one of them's just going to turn to Cody and is like, well, that was my plan kick his ass you're like all right i guess this is legally condoned now
1: okay sledgehammer fight
0: raven yeah is going to pull out these two sledgehammers and they're going to have a medieval sledgehammer battle because once again this is the interior mind space of all the things that these guys thought were cool (laughs) at 14 and that includes this medieval style duel with sledgehammers and they're putting in the effort like it does look like this is a hefty physical fight At some point, Cody, of course, as our good guy, he's going to win. And we're going to kind of end in the way that we started with a rock concert.
1: Yes, we get now. Everything is okay because, well, Bill Paxton, he ran off. He got everyone else in the neighborhood. They all everyone in this neighborhood has shotguns. So they outnumber the bikers. Bikers leave, leaving. He's leaving. Leaving's leaving. Off. It's fun. Yeah, leaving's leaving. Takes William Defoe, who is he? He remains alive. Apparently, in the original script, William Defoe was going to die, but they wanted to keep it PG and not an R rating. So the only things they had to do to make things a PG and not an R back in 1984 were don't show tits for too long and don't let the guy die. That's about it.
0: Well, also they realized that Bowser is always just there. Right? No matter how many times Mario comes and saves <laughs> Princess Peach, Bowser always comes back, so uh,
1: it's
0: just the thing. Just 8-bit nightmare.
1: Side note, Bill Paxson is the Luigi of this story, I, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, because yeah. it would be McCoy that's the Luigi, right? Oh, I guess. Or Maybe like... is, like, the sibling. But, yeah, yeah, McCoy seems like more the Luigi. She's running around with her little cap.
1: Paxson is more like Toad. Yeah, um, we're sorry, Mario, but the princess is being raped by Bowser in another castle. So,
0: also, I'm um, Bill Paxton.
1: Uh, <laughs> you know, we all want that.
0: I don't know when he like showed up at the bar. It's like, is that Bill Paxton? It like it's like Bill Paxton. Wow,
1: yeah, three right,
0: times. So- and this we rock got our, concert at the, the end. The rock
1: concert is ending now. The Sorrells are doing their show. Rick Moranis. I love this moment where Rick Moranis, he's lo- watching them and he says, yeah, the Sorrells, we're going to be rich. We're going to do it. And his lighting technician is just like, whatever, dude, long live rock and roll. Like really sarcastically. I love it. And Michael's, they are... Cody is there. He's heading out, and they, there's this kind of a, a sweet moment between him and Billy Fish, where Rick says Billy Fish, he says, "Hey, look, you did a lot of good there, man, and I'm not getting to get in the way. You're clearly the better lay than I am, so I'm not gonna get in the way between you and Ellen." And he's like, "Uh, yeah, but I'm, my life isn't on the road. I'm, I'm gonna head out." And it's like a very, it's an interesting moment. Like these two have had so much animosity throughout the film, and now it's like a, a respectful moment. And I find this but fascinating. That's- Weird. (laughs) Yeah. It's weird, but it's funny because apparently in real life, Michael Paré hated Rick Moranis. Hated that man so much. There are all these interviews I found with Michael Paré where he says something along the lines of, uh, I wasn't prepared for Rick Moranis because the guy's an insult comedian. So he's just throwing all these insults at me all the time. And normally when that happens, you can just slap someone around. But you can't do that in a movie set. And he's like, he has all these interviews where he complains about his inability to be able to slap the shit out of Rick yeah, Moranis. Like, can
0: you, Michael Perry? Like, yeah. is that what you can do on a non-film set? Is just <laughs> physically assault people? Because <laughs> I don't think that's how that
1: works. No, no. You think, wow, okay. We, we might have things to talk yeah, about, Michael statement. Perry.
0: But within God. the world of this film, yeah, Fish's just moment of, hey, I'm going to be the good guy here and just give you the girl... Yeah. when that's kind of a problematic statement kind of like, yeah, I'll give her to you once again, it's like, well, maybe it's Diane Lane's choice maybe mm-hmm. Ellen Aim has some sort of say in this maybe she doesn't want either of you assholes yeah. but, <laughs> so that's all, already a little weird but, two, the fact that he hasn't really demonstrated any reason to turn around after all of his jealousy throughout the entire movie to suddenly be like, you know what? you are the better lay I, I concede <laughs> to you three, that's probably not true, because Tom Cody looks kind of like the sort of dude who's like, I'm pretty, and all I have to do is show up, right? Rick Moranis uh, looks like the kind of guy that tries. So I would oh. actually put money on the fact that Rick Moranis is probably the much more considerate, attentive lover.
1: Oh, Rick Moranis is a guy who has perfected his carlingus like a mastermind. Yeah, I, like, I have no doubt about that.
0: Rick Moranis seems like, yeah, he would be the clear choice here between the two of these guys. Especially since then, Tom Cody is going to go, even after he's been given Ellen Ames, and talk to Ellen Ames. And he doesn't want her, really, because he's got better shit to do.
1: Also, Ellen is totally fine with the fact that he completely knocked her out. Yeah, because he's like,
0: I got to go. And he's like, yeah, you know me. And she's like, yeah, you're the guy with the right hook. Okay, you're the guy that punched me in the face on the subway. I'm going to miss you. Yeah, I'm (laughs) going (laughs)
1: to... I love it. He says, "Yeah, picking up guitar cases isn't really my thing." So he's just saying, "Like I'm too good for the roadie life to work with this whole crew you've got going on there." Like I could come along with you on tour, we could fuck, and I could help you out. But no, no, I'm not gonna do that. That's just not my style.
0: I got shit to do. Right. So she does at some point learn, like, when she's like, What did I ever do? Yeah. You just left. So we also learned that she was starting to become this great rock and roll person or whatever. And then he didn't even break up with her. He just disappeared because he was like, Peace. Yeah. I don't want to be a roadie. Right? <laughs> I, the spotlight needs to be mine or whatever. And then he's going to start walking away. Because they they have their little fundamentally incompatible conversation, but if she ever needs him for something, he'll be there. And this time, nobody even needs to pay him nine grand to do it.
1: If you ever need me, I'll be there. And
0: he's going to exit through the crowd. This is going to be a very... It has such Mad Max exit vibes, especially from the most recent Mad Max Fury Road. Almost seems exactly like the same angle shot of him weaving through the crowd of people as the camera just follows him disappearing through the sea of bodies, looking back, you know, his head, and then eventually he's just gone. This actually is fitting, because this was very heavily inspired by Mad Max and was actually going to be a Mad Max-style series. So Tom Cody was supposed to live on. This was supposed to be at least a trilogy, is what they had planned. Except for most of the people who were currently working at Universal Studios for this film at some point went and over to 20th Century Fox. And so Universal still owned the rights to the streets of Fire property. Yeah, so it just kind of got dropped because uh, at that yeah. point people were going Also, this movie just did not do very well commercially right. at the time, so I don't think they would have probably funded it anyway. I think
1: what I say are like yeah, fourteen million dollar budget made eight million dollars the box office, and then you consider how much of that money goes into how much more money goes into advertising, how much the theaters get of the profit or of the ticket sales. Yeah, this movie made negative money, so yeah. nothing was I'll... gonna come of that.
0: Though according to Joel Silver, the sequel is going to be set in the snow, and the following film would be set in the desert.
1: So Mario goes to snow world, then he goes to desert world. That's yeah. just what Mario do.
0: And yeah, exactly. And once again, it's interesting that like this is not a pitch that's focused on plot, Right, this is very <laughs> much a setting-driven. Yeah, it's like okay, the sequel. We're gonna go to Snow World. Third one, we're gonna go to the desert, and we're just gonna <laughs> you know carve out spaces dynamically in yeah these new settings. Oh so, uh,
1: yeah, but what's happening as as Cody is walking away? We end this movie the way that I every movie should end. The way that this movie ends with another goddamn Jim Steinman music number. Holy yeah. hell, I love this so much. The music that we got at the beginning, that that awesome operatic, just high intensity, high like tempo, just super heart pounding kind of music that we got at the beginning. We're going to get again at the end here when she sings the song tonight is what it means to be young. And there's so many beautiful shots in this. There's this glorious like start above the song where we have a shot close on that Elvis microphone that I talked about on Cry Baby as Ellen slowly brings it up to her mouth to begin singing the song. We have these glorious silhouette shots of like the crowd's arms swaying back and forth as we see Ellen Bade in that red and blue light on stage singing this awesome number. And the song is fascinating because originally they were going to end it with a Bruce Springsteen song called Streets of Fire. As sung by Ellen Aim. Makes sense. Yeah. And they filmed that scene, but they could not get the rights to it. So Jim Steinman, in two days, wrote this song. Joel Silver called him up and said, You bastard, I love this song. We have to do it. And they spent a million dollars reshooting the ending of this thing.
0: Yeah, shit.
1: (laughs) Go figure. What are you going to do? Three million dollar tarp, one million dollar ending musical number. It's how you go. But it's a fantastic scene. I can't even begin to do it justice describing it. The Sorrells are coming along. They're dancing. The song is so upbeat, so beautiful. And, yeah, it's just showing how badass Ellen Ames is. She's going to go on, be a rock star. And it's one of those things where a movie tells you this person is a rock star. She's a great performer. And you believe it absolutely diane lane completely sells like the persona and the you know stage presence of a rock star and the combined vocals from those two other artists that she's lip-syncing to are really selling it too so i always love that when i don't have to be convinced that someone is a rock star this just character just is a rock star you believe it 100 yeah. percent
0: although once again that the digital mix of the voice, it really helps sell it. Oh, like that's, that's just, what I mean. something... Yeah.
1: All of those things just brought together. Just a tiny
0: together. bit otherworldly about the power vocals. Yeah. And, yeah, it's the extreme realism. Extreme realism and the technicalities of pure cinema coming on in. So... And
1: Cody walks off into the sunset, or rides off into the sunset with McCoy...
0: In the still unreported stolen car, yeah, Mercury convertible.
1: Yeah, and there's a a coda to the joke from earlier where he gets in the car with her and says, Hey, maybe uh, it's my big shot with you. Uh, Yeah, Tom, like I said before, you're not my type. And they drive off into the sunset or a neon sign that looks like a sunset under every other L track. (laughs) There are so many L tracks they drive underneath in this movie, and they do it again at the end of this one. And scene.
0: Yeah, the person I was watching this with, it was maybe, I think, about five minutes into the movie, and they're like, hey, was this shot in Chicago? <laughs>
1: I'm like,
0: I was like, how could you tell? How could you tell? Yeah, they're small, like, small I, I recognize, hits. you know, that, that L. Small so, Yeah, there are some very distinct Chicago vibes to this film. There are also some very distinct studio vibes, and then there's some distinct Walter Hill vibes. Yep. This is a, a cinema film.
1: And that's Streets of Fire.
0: Yeah, that's Streets of Fire. Would recommend to people who like the technicalities of filmmaking, would not recommend it to people who like things for the plot. No, <laughs> not at all.
1: No, dear God. No, you always, oh, so. if anyone says, What's this movie like? you tell them, It's beautiful. It's a yeah. glorious film to watch and behold. Don't have to think about it too hard. <laughs> it's not a super intricate plot. Don't worry about it. It's it's all good. It's just neon lights, rock music, and the new Blu-ray that I think it's Shout Factory made is fantastic. I love That's that we're right. in an age of boutique Blu-rays where these oft-forgotten cult films from back in the day mm-hmm. are able to be you know digitally remastered. The sound can be made to be beautiful. So anyone with a you know moderate big-screen television and a sound bar can pop this thing in, and it's an awesome visual and auditory experience. Really quick, we have to say, there's a sequel, and we didn't watch it.
0: Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, there's a sequel.
1: There's a sequel. I think it's called Road to Hell. That came out in 2008, and I found a clip of it online, and I got some severe Showgirls 2 vibes from it, and I thought to myself, "Uh uh-uh, been down that road before, not doing that again. And for what I could tell, I I have no idea what the film is about, Uh, aside from the fact that Michael Paré is in it, and he says that his name is Tom Cody. I don't know what the hell it has to do with this movie. It is a very low-budget thing. I like The trailer to it had bad audio. It was one of those cases where like the scratch audio wasn't very good on set, and they never mm-hmm. redubbed it. So I thought, okay, no, I don't want to. I'm sorry. Sorry, whoever made this movie, but no. I've been down this road before at Showgirls 2. Not mm-hmm. doing it again.
0: Claire Kramer from Buffy is in it. Although... Oh, Okay the shots that i could see in the trailer. So there is a trailer out there. You can find it. And part of me is almost fascinated from the time capsule that appears in this and just those really bad early 2000s there's something that's distinctly early 2000s about it in mm-hmm. terms of the angles that they're using and this green screens that are behind them like it's the all weird green mismatch yeah. proportion ratios of mm-hmm their bodies compared to the green screen landscape behind them it's just very very awkward apparently the plot summary of the sequel is a soldier who's been fighting a long war is driven mad because he no longer believes in any purpose or righteous truth behind the killing he comes home to a surreal world looking for his first and only love from his youth believing she will rescue him from his demons on the road to Edge City, he encounters two seductive spree killers who oppose his efforts to find his love and the redemption he desperately seeks. Okay, fine. That's that's apparently the plot. So I guess he's still in love with Ellen Ames all these years later. But then you know, spree killers—they just they fuck a lot of shit up, you know.
1: I had to wonder if is it a remake or re—I don't know, because I saw at some point there's a, a clip of someone singing the songs from this movie. And the clip that I saw that I think you're referring to where he meets these two women, it's just a strange scene of these two women in bikinis that can't repair their car, and he repairs it for them, and it's weird and Yeah, I creepy. think those are
0: the spree killers. So there okay, are these yeah. two chick spree killers that are like, yeah, you want to go home and declare your love for Ellen Ames, who we keep getting flashback videos for that were reshot because... No one has the rights to show the initial ones from the first film, so we're just gonna recreate them. And that's good and all, except for we really need you to just come into this non-mercury convertible and kill people across the Nevada desert. The not Nevada, but Nevada desert. Yeah, That's kind of what I got from the trailer.
1: Okay, well. I
0: could be wrong. I didn't watch it either. I was like, I don't know if I have this in me right now.
1: A younger, more naive me would have sought this out to, to watch it.
0: Come on, the fuck my life film pass, double, yeah. This is your this is your role here.
1: No, no, after Showgirls 2, Critters 3, Exorcist 2 and lost boys the tribe i've uh oh man i can't i just can't with these sequels anymore holy shit
0: these this is cinema of cruelty these are movies for masochists you don't get hard limits (laughs) you don't get safe words only i safe word us out of here that's how that works
1: oh god i know oh citizen kane 2 is going to be a real bitch when we talk about that my god that one sucked top five Top five. Honorable mention goes out to Deborah Van Valkenburgh because I just love her anytime that she's on screen. She's such a gorgeous actor. And it was, you know, fun to see her in this and think of like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like stock players that Walter Hill has from the Warriors. Yeah, just great to see her. She's not in enough. And it's fascinating to know that she potentially had a, they were going to give her a voiceover thing at the very beginning. Wisely removed. That's good. My number five goes to Rick Moranis. Because I just loved everything he did here. And it was so fun to watch him play such a complete asshole throughout this entire thing.
0: Fair enough. Honorable mention goes to the cast because, you know, there's a cast in this movie, technically. Okay,
1: you're doing that. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay, cool.
0: Number five goes to the stunts and the stunt coordinators. There's some fun stuff going on here with especially the motorcycle sequence where people are flipping over their motorcycles. They're crashing their motorcycles. We've got Michael Perry stopping that bus with his palm, you know, like all of these actually fairly delicate stunt work that's happening. So mm-hmm. fun watch. Yeah.
1: These my n- number four. My number four is Diane Lane, because I, again, love every moment that she's on screen here. It's a small role in regards to the rest of the movie, but she sells the rock star persona so well when she is on stage. Uh, maybe it's just because I've done a lot of stage work myself and noth- nothing musically, of course, except for a few musicals that people wanted me to do that they should not have and that I should not have done. Oh, man. Theatrical disaster. That Tough times. But
0: <laughs> entire life is a theatrical disaster. Move on.
1: You know what? You know what? Moving on. Moving on. Diane Lane. Gorgeous. Fantastic. Great presence. And it's a difficult thing to do to create the persona of a rock star and sell that convincingly to an audience. If you're if an audience is told this person is a rock star and the actor makes you believe it, that's a skill. And Diane Lane has it. Good on her. Thank you, Diane Lane, at 18 years old. You gorgeous, glorious woman, you.
0: I did see her. In an interview at the time, actually, a a then contemporary interview talking about auditioning for this role that she dressed up as a rock star and tried to affect a rock star persona when she went in to audition. Nice. Before she even started up the audition because she'd been so known prior to that as a not exactly a hard individual or really (laughs) having that rocker thing. She was kind of the sweet girl or whatever. Yeah. All right, so number four for me is going to be a hand-in-hand tie because they go together so completely sure. with the music and the editing mm, right in on. this. Yeah. So the editing just edits on the musical beats, so it becomes a part of the tempo and the rhythm. And the music we've already kind of talked at length about. One fun thing about pure cinema in its earliest Incarnations actually had a lot of theory about the interrelationship between editing and music and taking certain musical theory components and visualizing them. So this actually plays around with that. I don't think intentionally, but it actually is another way in which it's really hearkening back to old school. Cinema pure. What about you?
1: My number three is Walter Hill. Just everything the man has brought to this, I think it's fascinating that after a huge commercial success, he has an opportunity to do anything that he would like, and this is the thing he really wanted to do. By God, I applaud that. Maybe it's not (laughs) something that would be commercially viable. Who could tell? Whoever really knows. You don't. But he was swinging hard, and this is the result. Thank you, Mr. Hill.
0: Fair enough. I'm realizing I forgot to put Walter Hill on my list, but uh, my number three is the production <laughs> department, the uh-huh. set designs, the location scouts. Mm-hmm. This movie, the space of it, it looks cool. It yeah. is a different type of gritty than our boy Joel Schumacher, but it's a same vibe of the, <laughs> the gritty streets, the alleys, the uh, transport systems, the... Uh, pyramid lamps and posters on the mid-century wallpaper walls in those apartments, the diner, like, a, yeah, visual delight.
1: My number two is Jim Steinman, who wrote the song that opens this movie, wrote the song that ends this movie and they bookend this film so perfectly. I have rewatched the opening of this thing so many times and got these songs stuck in my head. Anytime I start this movie, I cannot stop watching it for about nine minutes. And then I then I'm OK. Yeah, OK, yeah, now I get it. Whatever. But <laughs> I, I love that he, you know, contributed this song uh, Tonight is what it means to be young so quickly. I can respect a songwriter who's able to churn something out that fast and it has like that heart behind it. That's really cool. And the fact that, yeah, he would do this while he was also you know working with Meatloaf on the Bad Out of Hell mm-hmm. albums. That's pretty badass to me. At least that's what you know. Fourteen year old me uh, loves so much.
0: See, so you're with them. It's this is the inner landscape of the fourteen year old boy. Yeah, yeah,
1: they're absolutely <laughs> Mind
0: of what's cool. So my number two it goes out to the cinematography on this. So Andrew Laszlo. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. And I guess I will put Walter Hill with him sure, here, yeah. since I think it really is the combo often of Hill mm-hmm. and Laszlo that really makes something magical. It's Hill's push towards that extreme realism and then laszlo being able to light it in the way that it needs to be since we mentioned that 48 hours doesn't quite match the lighting in the way that warriors and streets yeah. of fire it still
1: a good looking film but yeah just not the, not the same magic i think it's definitely so, like yeah, we we can say that beyond the black rainbow and mandy are i to me are both gorgeous films but it's very clear that they have a different feel about them
0: you can say it's very clear that they have a different cinematographer, is what yes. we're saying. So, yeah. Laszlo, you matter. Laszlo brings it. And this film is just gorgeously shot. Yes. So gorgeously shot. What's your number one?
1: My number one is the set design. And I sadly don't have any names to go along with that. But the set design, production design, and the look of this thing are magic to me. You mentioned Joel Schumacher earlier in 8mm, and that's definitely you know what I got a lot, like what I was reminded of a lot watching this. Because what I love the most about 8mm was the texture of the film, like the grime and the grit that you can just see coming off the screen. And that's another reason why I'm so happy films like this get great Blu-rays nowadays, because we can do great 4K scans of the original film elements or in this case, the interpositive details, whatever, but really good scans of the film and really bring all those beautiful wet streets to life and all that great neon coloring that was really meant to be there that you can never, you would never get that like when you saw this on HBO back in the day on like on a tube television or on a VHS tape. Those are just details that aren't there. Nowadays, we got Blu-ray and we have these glorious transfers of these films and it brings forth the set design and the, just the texture and the look of this film from another time in another place, whether it's this nice Richmond neighborhood or the gritty battery or the ultra-colorful uh, third neighborhood whose name I don't think is ever really mentioned. But all of these places look so great in their own right, and they ha- all have their chance to shine. And that is thanks to set design, production design, all of that. So
0: Wait, though, so does that mean the cinematographer Andrew Laszlo didn't make your list?
1: Oddly enough, no. But, uh... I guess you can kind of count him in there, too, because he shot it. He made it look as good as it does. Uh, I was gonna
0: say, this is a film that had like a multi million dollar tarp on it for their cinematography, and it did not make your list. <laughs> Most of what we talked about throughout the last two hours was the cinematography. Walter and it did Hill not didn't make, make your, your list.
1: list, so whatever, bitch.
0: <laughs> I, I squeezed him in there with I'll Andrew squeeze Laszlo.
1: Andrew Laszlo in my number one then. That's right. I'm putting him even higher on my list there, than yeah, you did. Yeah, I was going to say, like,
0: come on, cinematographer. Like, yeah. The fuck. Okay, so my number one though. Because the one thing that, I mean, technically, I do think that the cinematography is the most technically outstanding thing about this film. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that just ekes by a little bit more on the pure joy level for me is the costuming. Oh, uh,
2: okay. The
0: costume designer. Yeah. Holy shit. Which is why I was trying to point it out, like, throughout, where it's like, okay, we've got Rick Moranis's, like, little multi pattern, multi colored suit that he's going to wear. We're going to have the weird pieces of leather that generally don't come in leather like the baseball cap and defoe's rubber latex oshkosh bagosh overalls we're gonna have this 1940s (laughs) dust bowl era thing happening we're gonna have like 1950s capris like we are pulling from all of the major iconic looks in different decades of cinema and we're gonna stuff them all in one movie Iconic looks with the exception of those overalls, which are just a thing in and of themselves. Like that's just a <laughs> stroke of genius that comes from nowhere. Gosh, yeah,
1: gosh, my gosh. So, S M line. That's <laughs> like I say, Yeah,
0: the the textures of the costuming, they blend really well into the world and just taking from all of the different decades really. In the way that the set production materials really kind of help create this otherworldly space. Like, the fashion really does that as well. And there's just some really understated, but really statements that just pop. Like, fashion pieces that just pop. So, yeah. Costuming. Right on. Not as many films get, you know, like, the costuming shout-out. I think there have been a couple of them. I think Sleepy Hollow and A Dangerous Method have been, like, the two Mm, that really got...
2: True,
0: yeah. And Cry Baby. Okay, I guess I do. Kind of well, throughout yeah. some costuming respect, but it's not all the time.
1: We don't talk about them as much, I think, compared to yeah, certainly to not as much as like a cinematography sim- or yeah. that sort of sound thing.
0: design and stuff like that. True, so. true,
1: but very important, and it works. I will admit, it is awesome choices here. I mean, God, fuck, Diane Lane's costumes when she's on stage are so fucking awesome.
0: Yeah, that bold red.
1: Goddamn. Yep.
0: So, yeah, this is not, by any means, the best pure cinema ever. No, no. The Warriors is way more fun than even Streets of Fire, but this is the one we chose to do. I don't know. It's still Walter Hill. We still feel it. It's still that bare-bone, minimalist, stark, Western-style landscape of Hill's working mind.
1: I think despite this minimalism, we still have a lot to say about these films.
0: Yes. So, unlike Hill... We are not exactly time for the safe word, which once again I give because you don't get limits. Jesus. But yes. <laughs> it is time to conclude this uh, uh this verbose. Just trying to lead you into
1: it so you could fucking say it.
0: <laughs> you keep missing when I say the safe word. I, I've already said it. Verbose. Thank God. See, I'm too verbose to even, even like focus in on the safe word. Uh, verbose. And now...
2: and been corrupted by